Blank check with Griffin and David. Blank check with Griffin and David. Don't know what to say or to expect. All you need to know is that the name of the show is Blank Check. Yeah, great art is about conflict and pain and guilt and longing and love disguised as sex and sex disguised as love. And let's face it, you got a big head start, you know, because the only true currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone else when you're podcasting. Yeah. Hey, everybody. My name is Griffin Newman. David Sims. This is a podcast. It's called Blank Check with Griffin and David. Yeah. We're hashtag the two friends. David is in a Dracula mood today. <laughs> Uh, this is a podcast where we talk about filmmakers mm-hmm. who have success. Cinema. 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 Boy, am I loopy. Uh, I, I spilled a uh, half a bottle of lemonade on my way to the studio, and now my entire uh, genital area smells like lemonade. Good. Uh, so I, I love lemonade. I'm in that mode. David's in loopy mode. You're flying away to London for two weeks. I am. Uh, tomorrow. Tonight, tomorrow, tomorrow morning. Early yep. tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you got that rush about trying to get all your life business in before you uh, get in yeah. the plane. Yeah. Well, th- this is a movie about a guy who's trying to, in a rush to get a, a story together. Sure. I'm t- tr- I don't know, trying to connect something. Hey, so. We're going to talk about, well, the name of our miniseries. Is we pot a cast. We go over filmmakers. We pot a cast. We do miniseries based on filmmakers. Yeah. Uh, who have had uh, careers ups and downs, who got blank checks at a certain point because of, uh, you know, an Oscar. Because of, uh, you know, big financial success, sometimes both. And today we're covering the film that won the subject of our miniseries, his only Oscar. Cameron Crowe, We Pot a Cast is the name of the miniseries. The film we're talking about today is Almost Famous. That's right. And more specifically for this episode, we watched uh, Untitled, colon, The Bootleg Cut. David is jerking off a very thin penis, (laughs) but it's long. It's very long. It's like a Coney Island hot dog. Untitled. Uh, Please. Colon, the bootleg cut. Yes, the extended cut, I suppose, is what bootleg. it's... Well... It was real underground, this cut. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They had it was to, they had to released s- on mass market DVD. <laughs> they had to smuggle the reels into the editing bay, and then they had to smuggle the DVDs into Best Buy. It was a fucking bootleg cut. Yeah, so the film was about two hours long. The bootleg cut is almost two hours and 40 minutes long. Uh, yeah, I think the Much theatrical longer. version's a bit above two. Two hours, two minutes. And uh, the uh, bootleg cut is a bit under three. Yeah, it's long. It's like 2.45, something like that. It's something like that, yeah. Um, and here, uh, to talk with us, a famous bootlegger, uh, also famous for producing. Sure, uh, bootlegging ben, and producing. Ben Hosley, producer Ben, producer Ben, the Ben Deucer, the Poet Laureate, the Haas, Mr. Positive, Birthday Benny, the Tiebreaker, the Fuckmaster. He's not Professor Crispy. He is the Poet Laureate. He peeper. is our finest film critic. He's, boy, is he a peeper. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's graduated to certain titles and past miniseries, uh, <laughs> such as uh, producer Ben Canove, Kylo Ben, uh, Ben Night Shyamalan, and Ben Say. Let's all greet uh, him with a hearty hello, Fennel, uh, Ben wow, Hosley. That was like a marathon. Lock the gates, guys. <laughs> Lock the gates. You do, <laughs> you do definitely have, have a Marini quality, Ben. Um, how so? Vocally. Okay. A little raspy, but no, yeah. Marin's got a real, you know. But when you said it just All then. All right, what the fuck, Anistas? When you just said it, it was pretty, it was pretty spot on. Say lock the gates again. Lock the gates. Yeah, I mean, that's really Marin-y. Now, right. now. 
Hopefully, I don't complain as much. No, that's what I was saying. I, I Marin's great in that scene. He's great in that Why scene. Why didn't he do more movies? I don't know. His horrible personality? Yeah, I think that. <laughs> yeah. If only... If only there were thousands of hours of podcasting I could use to figure out why Marin was burning bridges after the release of Almost Famous and how and who with. We'll never be able Ooh. to piece together the full story. What do you think story. of Fallon in this movie? Pretty oh. good. What? Pretty good. I mean, he's got more to do in this cut, actually. Yeah, this cut's, yeah. Do you know why I he's like- He's in like one scene in the uh, yes. cut, right? Yeah. yeah, it's the intro scene, but it's a very truncated version. Um, right. Do you know what I like about him in this movie? I think this is the only movie that like kind of shows that like Jimmy Fallon's like kind of slippery. Yeah. Do you yeah, know what I'm saying? The, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's he's usually working so hard to be the off. nice guy, and then I think in this movie it's like okay, he's like personable, but you get the sense that he's like a little, little too slick. Yeah. So that's that's the podcast. You know, we did it. We reviewed Mark Maron and Jimmy Fallon's yep. performances in the film Almost Famous. Uh, two luminaries of comedy who <laughs> wield uh, a lot of power. These We've guys. now uh, yeah. thrown both of them under the bus vaguely. And uh, yeah, uh, wish us luck fan. in our in- future fans. endeavors I'm in the world of podcasting and comedy. Do you guys do you guys watch Maron the no, show? I don't. Uh, I do not. Do you? Yeah. Down, 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 down. Lock the gates. <laughs> I mean, it's fine. I don't know. It's whatever. But it's interesting that, you know, you could have a podcast and then get a TV show. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just, just throwing that out there. Yeah. Down, 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 down. You talk about Blank Check Babies, the pitch we've been working on? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the three of us in a playpen and we I, overanalyze animated films, Blank Check Babies. I watched the first few episodes of Marin and it never quite clicked for me. I bet it's okay. Yeah, I, I have heard it's okay. Yeah. Uh, you know a movie I like a lot? What? Almost Famous. Yeah, okay. So you like this movie? Yeah, old lemonade dick over here <laughs> loves Almost Famous. Okay, so um, let's hear. Yeah, you know, I saw this film in the United Kingdom when I was 14, 15, whenever it came out September 2000. In the year 2000. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure when it came out in, in the, the UK. In the year 2000. Yep, I like that bit. Thank you. A lot on uh, on the old late night. <laughs> it was great. Let's let's throw Conan and La Bamba each a honorary ten comedy points for that bit. Love it, yep. love it. Uh, Conan's the best. La Bamba's the best. <laughs> Lock the gates. What what am I talking about? What what what's what's wrong with me? Come here, cat. Hey, what are the names of his cat? Boomer yeah. lives. Yeah, come here, Boomer. Um. Anyway, uh. Wow, and we we were ragging on Karina Longworth. I mean, not ragging on her, but we yeah. we've been mimicking her. We've been mimicking all we're, the great we're podcasts. We're going through all the uh, yeah yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, the, uh, this so is, I, this I, is blank check. Uh, I'm Ira Glass. <laughs> trying to think of other podcasts. We aren't can you going to be on This American Life? Yeah, yeah. I I mean, I don't know when it will happen in relation right. to when because we're recording this episode in advance. But yeah. at the time we're recording this episode tomorrow, I am uh, recording a segment with Ira Glass for This American Life. Interesting. Yeah. No okay. spoilers. Tune in. But I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm telling a story on this American Life that that's being recorded tomorrow. Which very is crazy. exciting. Crazy. Um, We're just ready for that plug. I just wanted to plug a blank. You better check. fucking plug blank check. He's got a plug blank check. I don't want to plug blank check. I want him to go. Uh, Griffin Newman uh, hosts the podcast Blank Check. Great. Uh, so I saw Almost Famous. Yeah, two thousand. With a bunch of my teen friends. Okay. And I didn't like it that much. Mm-hmm. And that's been my relationship with this movie ever since, and I've seen it many times. I always watch it. I'm like, this time, yeah, it's gonna spark for me, like because it's such a popular film among our peers, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's generationally, generationally big, big movie. movie, yeah. 
and I don't despise it at all. I, I, I like a lot of things about it, but it's never worked for me quite. And, and I certainly don't have the emotional connection that I think mm-hmm. a lot of people do. And every time I'm like, this will be it. It'll, it'll get me this time. It never does. And this time I watched your famous bootleg cut that you found under a truck or wherever you found it. You know, well, I, let's not say you broke fam- into Columbia it's, Records. It's almost know. a famous bootleg cut. <laughs> and uh, you know, thinking, oh, this will finally be what I was looking for, mm-hmm. and I still haven't found what I'm looking for. To quote the great U two, yeah, the great U two. Mm-hmm. That's another podcast we can ape right now. Oh, I love that one. Yeah. Uh, you talking U two to me? That's a great podcast. No, I'm not. I'm talking about the movie Almost Famous. <laughs> so here are two questions I have for you. Yeah. One, would you say that you don't like this movie very much or you dislike this movie? I just don't like it very much. I don't okay. dislike it. It's like a three out of five. Come see, come Yeah. I yeah. just, because I, I know this film is so well liked, right. I've just always been kind of uh, on the, the back half. I don't know. You have to plant your flag more firmly because everyone else just sort of assumes like, oh, you must love Almost Famous. Exactly. Like, Especially uh, for people right. like us, I think it's a movie that like- I think- you're a writer, and you write about pop culture. Sure, you must absolutely, love Almost Famous, absolutely. you know? I think I like this film about as much as I like Vanilla Sky. Interesting. Yeah, it's like both of them are, like to me, like very interesting, noble failures with a lot of elements I appreciate. Okay, because I do think... I think Almost Famous is a better movie than Vanilla Sky in mm-hmm. that it tells a story a little more completely and doesn't swerve between 18 genres <laughs> wildly but, but uh, Vanilla you know. Sky is more ambitious in that yeah, sense which exactly. makes it more Vanilla sort of Sky's got exciting some, got some lucid dreams yeah but I do think you're right I mean this is a very big movie first generationally I think a lot of people our age when we saw this film it was like it's it's a bit of a bridging movie for people our age I think why because why can I, tell I, mean, you, I want you to tell me I, tell why? I do theory? want you to tell me it's why. an adult film right about a young, about a young character kid, sure. going into an adult world yeah sure so I feel like when I was a kid, I saw this movie, and I was like, oh, my God, that's what being a grown-up You were like, movie. lock the gates. I was like, yeah. <laughs> I'm not giving that up. No, we're doing it the entire episode. <laughs> Did um, you see it in theaters? Did you see this one in theaters? You were probably pretty young. 2000s. No, I can tell you when I saw it for the first time. Mm-hmm. I saw it, uh, I, I guess, about uh, nine months after it came out. You know, yep. when, when did it come out? September, October 2000. Uh, it came out September 15th, 2000. I saw it the following June at Sleepaway Camp. Um, and it was like my, my summer camp was run by like, uh, you know, sort of ex hippie rock yuppie people. Sure. And, um, these fucking Gen X fools who like the Allman Brothers band and God knows what else from this movie. No comment. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, it was like a big deal where like they'd play movies on the lawn. They had a screen and a projector and they'd play movies on the lawn. It was very cool. But it was like, usually it was like, Hey, I gotta play like a kid's movie or a teenager movie. A little big age range. Right. But they played this movie that was rated R because to them it was like, they loved this movie so much. Sure. And they thought the spirit of it was so big. It's a soft R. It's not It's not. It's a too, soft R. But when yeah. I was no, no, 12 I know, I know. and it no, was a summer 12. camp. But right, I'm trying, you know, it's got a few fucks. Yeah. But yeah. I think the theatrical version is pretty light on the fucks. It, it's it, got like a glimpse of nudity maybe. Yeah, you see a Hudson titty or two. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's pretty mild. Maybe one of my criticisms about oh, well, the movie, mm-hmm. but you know. Yeah, um, but it was like it was you know I was watching it with a bunch of uh, contemporaries sure. on a lawn, and it was like that's kind of an ideal setting to see that movie in. It was like on a lawn in the Definitely. summer, with like a can of soda pop, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah, but I saw I saw it then I've seen it. You know, I was watching it today, and it's one of those movies where I was trying to even figure out how many times I've seen it. I definitely have a few distinct memories of like putting it on. Right. I was also while watching this because I own. 
um the uh there was there was like the two disc DVD that had the bootleg. Okay. And the original. Is it in like a black uh, cover, like with a sort of like yeah. the poster is very small? Yes, yes exactly. Yeah, 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 I remember that. It had three discs. It was the bootleg cut, the original cut, and then uh, a Stillwater EP. Yep. Which like at the time- Beaver Dawn. But at the time that was like a Lock cool fucking DVD set. They locked the gates on that set. It was a limited run. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I- um, I would sometimes be in the mood to watch the movie, and I put on one disc or the other. And okay. watching the bootleg cut, I was like, "Oh, I don't know if I've ever watched this from beginning to end." Interesting. It's a movie I will often. Uh, I have a hard time going to sleep at night. No, too bad. Uh, yep, my brain uh, drives me insane. Sure, it sort of just spins. It spins. Uh, yep. Another thing that may not be surprising to listeners of this show that I can't stop over obsessing about mm. stuff at night. Mm. Um, mm. But there are certain movies that are sort of comfort yep. food movies for I, me. I have this too. That I will sure. throw on and if I just watch something where I've like seen it a thousand times and sort of background noise it like lulls me into whatever. Right? Yeah, for me it's Ponyo. That's a good one. I just watched Ponyo the other day. I was in a horrible mood all day. Yeah. I was barking at my girlfriend. Oh boy. And then I like put on Ponyo and she was like, what are you doing? And I was like, don't worry about it. This is a good idea. Yeah. And like 20 minutes out, I was like, look at Banya. She's in the sea. Like, it just calms me right down. It's mostly the Pixar movies for me. Sure, those are good ones. Although, some of them are, you know, whew. But I even like that. I don't want something that's I just- I was uh, waving my face with my hand <laughs> so people don't, you know, to, I... uh, to you know, get rid of my tears, I think. is what I'm Yeah. yeah I'm yeah. not looking for something that just placates me. Sure. I'm looking for something that I have a sort of comfort in because I know it. Yeah. Yeah, and no, I, no, no. I the, like you don't have to concentrate, right. and you just yeah. you know, the, you know, um, you can get excited about it. But this is so a movie almost I, famous as one of them. Yeah, I, I'd say you know, once a year when I'm like, ah, fuck, I've watched like Ratatouille too many times this week. You know, sure. I'll throw on almost. I'll be like, oh, that's a an offbeat one that will have that sort of effect on me. And I put on one or the other, so I've watched like some of it and then fallen asleep a bunch of times of both cuts. That's fine. And I also at certain times just pull it out and I'm like I just, I mean specifically. Pull it out? Lemonade dick itself? I pull my lemonade dick out and then I, once the dick is out I go to my DVD cabinet Mm -hmm. and I find the almost famous DVD. I very often, especially since he passed will just watch the Phelps Seymour Hoffman scene. Well there are the best scenes in the film so it's a smart thing to do. right? Unquestionably you almost want a whole movie of him. Yep. Yeah. Uh, he he was, you know, I like to throw out hyperbolic statements, but I think it's fair to say he was my favorite actor of all time. You you love PSH. Um, and I went through a really tough time when he died, uh, yeah. perhaps affecting me more than anyone I've known personally who died, uh-huh. which speaks more to the- uh, Yeah, that's your problem there. People who have, it's my problem and <laughs> yeah. also, you know, maybe some better people got to start dying in my life. Oh, well, <laughs> come on. Hey, wait a second. I'm getting yeah, on a plane. Yeah, not gonna Jesus. Look. Not you. Not you. Yeah, I know. I just don't like that kind of talk. Yeah, I don't either. Okay. Uh, I was, you know, bad joke. Uh, but but uh, you know, I I'm constantly still sort of grieving over Phelps Seymour Hoffman, mm. and this movie is, I feel like, such a good encapsulation of what made him special. Where it's like three scenes, four scenes, arguably, you know. Yep. I say two of those scenes are like continuous, and it's really four scenes, and um, there is uh such detail and like messy humanity, yeah, and depth, and he was always good at playing kind of broken people. Mm-hmm. And like embarrassing people, you know, like the dark side yeah. that we all try to hide. But this is one of the few movies where that is balanced with also like him being very lovable without being saccharine. Yeah, it's not his his parts are not saccharine. They're not saccharine. But when you see him in the movie, this you movie hug him. is yeah. fucking saccharine as shit. But he his parts are not. But yeah, he is a go on, Ben. Go on. Uh, well, we should mention who he's portraying, which is Lester Bangs, a yeah, pretty great rock critic, pretty famous rock critic. Yeah. 
he's actually, uh, I mean, a lot of people say they were the first to use the term punk, but he is definitely one of the, the first journalists to use that terminology. He's, he, I mean, he's one of the people who really uh, shaped our perception of music, you know? And how we talk about music today is still sort of the ripple effect of how he started talking about it. Yeah. Um, and he was a real-life mentor to Cameron Crowe. Yeah. And when Philip Seymour Hoffman got the part, he, like, obsessively listened to tapes over and over again so we could try to get the speaking rhythms. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think, you know, when you listen to him, they don't have the same sort of voice pitch. Sure. And they don't physically look that similar, but he got no. the spirit of the guy down really sure. well. And it's just such a good fucking character. I also believe, if I'm not mistaken, Philip Seymour Hoffman had uh, the flu the entire time he was doing this movie. He seems pretty run down. Or pneumonia. I don't it know. It works for the character, but it also is like, he only worked a couple days, and here. he's sick the whole time, and it's like one of the best performances, uh, I think. It's ever. a great performance. It's one of my favorite performances, I would. Period. I don't know if I'd even put it in his top five, though. That's how good he is. That's the problem. I mean, that's the problem with ranking his performances is every one of his performances was great. Um, yeah. And every moment in every one of his performances. He's great in happiness. Yeah. What about um those prank calls? Fuck, I don't even remember the. I can't even do the joke because I forget the name of that movie with Ben Stiller. Along came Polly. Yeah, I'll take you to the fucking mat on this one. That's a great performance. <laughs> full right. stop. All right, I don't want to talk about that it. movie. Blows. It. It's basic as shit. It. That performance is unbelievable. Uh, yeah. Okay. So yeah. almost famous. Okay, almost famous. So this is. I see it at summer camp. I've seen it a number of times since then. I watched the Fulton Hoffman scenes no, probably I, seven we, 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 times. We got time. it. You yeah. said it. Yeah. So this is Cameron Crowe. He's made Jerry Maguire. Mm-hmm. Talk about uh, blank check. You know, talk about a hit. You Dude, know. Do Hollywood's like, what do you want to do? Whatever you want. What do you want to do? Um, so uh, he DreamWorks, mm-hmm. the relatively nascent studio. Yeah. Right? I mean, they start up Formed the year after Jerry Maguire comes out. Spielberg, Geffen, Katzenberg. S-K-G. S-K-G. Um, but you have to imagine, DreamWorks starts up the year after. I mean, the first release is 1997, which yeah. means they were probably in you know development and sure. stuff, looking for people in 96. So I'm guessing pretty soon after Jerry Maguire, they like come to him and they go like, what do, you, what do you want to do? What do you want? We want to be a filmmaker-friendly studio. We want to get right. you in the fold. What do you want? And it takes four years for this movie to come out. Yeah. I think it takes them a long time to write it. You have to think, especially with Jerry Maguire, which is such a good movie star movie, right? Yes. Like, he took Cruise. Also took him about four years to make that one. Yeah. yeah. But he took Cruise to a whole nother level. The dude was already the biggest movie star. He unfolded new dimensions to him, right? Yeah. And then, like, Cuba, you know, good character actor, made him an Oscar winner. Okay. Renee Zellweger, pretty much unknown, overnight movie star. You have to imagine everyone's lining up to work with him. Okay. You know, the obvious thing would be make a star vehicle, cash in your chips. Okay, sure. Like, but you already made Tom Cruise. I mean, I know. is there a bigger star? I just love that he goes, okay, my next film is, I know for a while Brad Pitt was going to play Russell in the film. Sure. Okay. I mean, but he, I, he might have been good. He might have been good. But I don't think that was a, um, like, he was writing a movie for Brad Pitt. I think he was like, well, all these big stars want to be in my movie. If You know, he must have played this. Sure. Penny Lane was originally written for Sarah Polly. 
she would have been much better. Who's a great actress, but also not a big star and wasn't a big star then. No, but neither was Kate Hudson. No, I'm just saying that's interesting to me. I mean, because Brad Pitt, it like dropped out and then they went with Billy Crudup, who was one of those guys who people thought was on the cusp. Yeah, I'm I'm looking him up now because I'm trying to remember where Crudup was in his in his career when uh, when he got like, this role. Uh, uh, he'd been in like, you know, he'd been in the- Inventing the, in, the Abbots? Yeah, and he'd been in- um. You know, without minutes, which was one of the two uh, Prefontaine oh, movies, yes. you know, and yes. might have been the worst one with a bigger release. Like one of them is a little worse, but got at least a little more it's exposure. It's Jared Leto and Crudup, right? Yeah, and one of them's Donald Sutherland, and the other one is Prefontaine is is the one with Crudup. Prefontaine is the one with Leto. Yes, I'm sorry. And without limits is the one with Crudup, but they're both playing Steve Prefontaine. Right, and Sutherland is in the Crudup one. That sounds right. And yes. like almost got an Oscar nom for it. Got a lot of the precursors. Yeah, he got he got some of that traction just I think just out of that sort of like, oh God, he's never gotten an Oscar he's nomination. He's also you know. still never gotten a nomination. That's crazy. He's one of the best living non-nominated actors. Okay. Right? Uh yeah. Uh someone just sent me a Venmo request for one hundred million dollars. Who? As a coworker, tis a joke, a bit. Oh, an exciting business opportunity. A bit. Seems like he might have been hacked. Yeah, well, it seems like a bit. Um. Anyway, so so he'd been in that, but yeah. it hadn't hit. Mm-hmm. He'd been in the high low country. Mm-hmm. Oh, and he'd been in Jesus's Son and White Waking the Dead. So he was. I mean, these are not big movies, no. obviously. But the high low country, which is like a westerny kind of thing with Woody Harrelson and Patricia Arquette, right? It had like a little Oscar buzz, but then it yeah. didn't land. He's also one of these guys where they're not big movies. It's a lot of Sundance. Jesus' things. son is like not a big movie at all with Sundance, but it's like, ooh, like, yeah. this is a charming man. Well, that was the thing I was going to say. He was the lead in all of these. And then have you seen Waking the Dead? Waking the Dead's kind of an underrated little movie with Jennifer Connelly. The Connelly one? Yeah. Was that a, what's his name? It's like fall, falls in love with Keith Gordon. I yeah, think Keith Gordon, right, from Christine. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, he's got a little traction. Certainly not a star, but. Yeah. But, uh, you can see what they saw in He's an, uh, an incredibly handsome man who's very charismatic, he, and he's a good fucking technical actor. He is handsome, which is why it's kind of funny that he's now become a go-to creep. Yeah. Which is, he's suited to. You right. Know? But, like, in um, the film Lawless... No, 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 it's not Lawless. It's in um, Public Enemies. Yes. Where he plays J. Edgar Hoover, this, mm-hmm. like just snake like like little freak he's great but like that's the role he plays now. and he also in same in spotlight in the watch he plays a creep i haven't literally seen he plays like a creep who throws sex parties and like they think he's an alien yeah i mean his character might just be named creep in that movie but yeah he's become I mean, that was the thing you know because for a long time people were like why didn't billy crudup happen you know, it felt like it was all right there for the taking. And people went, well, is it because Almost Famous, like, bombed? And it was like, no, but Kate Hudson, like, happened off of that. Um, and I think it was that there was something always a little too slick about him. Sure. I'm he's, not saying. Yeah. No, he's got that call. I'm not saying to his detriment as an actor. I'm saying to his detriment as a quote unquote movie star. Sure. Because movie stars need to have some sort of, like, it's not just being charming, it's a likability, you're rooting for them. Yeah. And Crudup always felt, to use the term again, a little slippery, you know? Yeah. He seemed a little too confident in, like, himself. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, that's, like, the role that he's fit into. He's great in Spotlight. Great in Spotlight. Really great in Spotlight. Um, uh, what else is he? He's a good actor. He just never. Loves him in Big Fish. I know you and I divide on that movie, but I love him in Big Fish. No. 
We don't divide on Big Fish. We divide because I think it's a... a I like Big Fish a lot. He's my least favorite part of Big Fish. I think it's a masterpiece, and you think it's pretty good. I think it's good. Yeah, right. So I say there's a bit of a divide. All right. Fine. A little. But a we're both divide. on the one, one side, because sure. that is a movie which most people are anti. Yeah, which is... Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the three leads of this film are, uh, you know, supposed to be Brad Pitt, Sarah Pauly, and an unknown kid. And then uh, Sarah Polly drops out because she feels like she can't pull off the role. Yeah. Um, uh, Kate she would have been great. Would have been great. Because the sweet hereafter is two years ago, right? Mm-hmm. She's She would have been great. But maybe, I don't know why she didn't think she could do it. Uh, Kate Hudson was originally cast in the Deschanel role as the older sister. Um, interesting. And he bumps up Kate Hudson to Penny Lane. Now, Kate Hudson's, me and Ben, birthday Benny. Mm-hmm. Um... We're talking about this. She's 21. Mm-hmm. And when she makes the movie 2021, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, the character's supposed to be 16. She doesn't seem 16. The only thing Her that works. supposed to be 16? She says she's 16. That's the whole scene. When they were like 18. No, I'm 17. And she's like, no, I'm 16. Isn't the truth? I, I interpret that scene differently than you do. No, it's her saying she's 16. That's how old she's supposed to be. I don't think she's 16 because he's 15. Right. He's 15. Because the whole point is she's like, isn't it funny? The truth just sounds different. And he's like, I'm 15. To her, the truth is 16. He, she's 16. She's I, saying, I'm 16. I have never interpreted that scene that how way. How do you interpret yeah, the scene? You, how old what do you, you think talking she about? Is? That's I, what the scene means. I interpret that scene as she's lying back to him to prove to him how much it sounds like lying. Yeah, but then when they hit 16, she's like, isn't it funny? The truth sounds different. And she's saying, I'm 16. I thought she was saying that to him saying his age. No, she's 16. She's supposed to be 16. That's how old she's Have you verified that? It's in the movie. See, who, who? I interpret that scene as being like she's calling him out and saying, like, isn't funny how the truth sounds different? And this then is... he goes, yeah, I'm 15. Like, he realizes he can't fight no, it. No, it's like an awkward moment. He's like, I'm 15. And she just has been, you know, her, like, weird little fairy talk has been proven kind of ridiculous. That's how I take that. I don't know. I never, I never. <laughs> she's 16. Ben. I mean, yeah, I can see your interpretation, I guess. But, you, but, but you've always taken it that she's 16. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, because also, isn't it supposed to be sort of like uh, gross that yeah. these guys are taking advantage of these young girls? Oh, yeah, definitely. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And Anna Paquin's like a little, little baby in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't know. To me, she's supposed to be 16. I mean, my problem with Kate Hudson, one of my memory, many problems with this performance, is that she just seems a little too old and wise for the character. Or not wise is the wrong word, but just a little too mature. Uh, yeah, yeah. My, here's my problem. I mean, we have to remember when this movie came out, she landed like oh, huge. It was people were like, "This is the next thing. She's this the next is thing. incredible. This performance." Yeah. And uh, everyone thought she, she was, was gonna win the Oscar. A hundred percent. She was considered a near lock. Yeah, and it was one of the biggest upsets of the last. She lost 20 to Marsha Gay Harden and Pollock. It's a weird. Upset, and, and it was I, a weird case. Inexplicable. It was a weird case where Hudson had won every precursor, and Marsha Gay Harden had not been nominated for any of them. I want to verify that. I believe Marsha Gay Harden did not get the Globe or the SAG nomination, and Hudson won both. She lost the SAG. Who lost the SAG? Hudson. Hudson. To whom? Judy Dench in Chocolat. That is so fucking weird. Very strange. That's the weirdest fucking thing. I've ever heard. And that's coming from old Lemonade Dick over here. Judy Dench won the SAG for Chocola? Yep. She, Which, Kate Hudson won the Golden Globe. 
Dench won the SAG. Can you imagine being in the so year funny, 2000 and seeing Chocolat going, yeah, that's probably one of the best performances I've seen all year. Um, but you remember, Dench had not won the SAG in 98, the year she wins the Oscar. So maybe they're trying to make up for it. That's so Shrug, weird, but you she know. won the Oscar. Okay. I mean, so she had lost the SAG. And Marsha Gay Harden was nominated for neither. She right? wasn't nominated for the SAG because she was entered as lead. And SAG has weird rules about that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I think she may not have been in the Globes because... You know, what do the Globes know from Pollock? Yeah. (laughs) You know, so it's really weird. I mean, it is a lead performance in Pollock, and that might be why Marsha Gay Harden won because it's a very, you know, dominant performance. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that film? Uh, Yeah, yeah. And, um, uh, oh, you know, maybe Frances McDormand, obviously, you know, that could be the other thing who's also nominated for this film and is also wonderful in it. Maybe she took some votes, you know, maybe. I don't know. There's an argument. It's an odd loss. There's an argument to Kate Hudson's, uh, that character's in a weird nether zone between lead and supporting, too. Uh, which one? You could oh, almost oh, make oh, an argument Hudson? that Hudson is lead in this movie. You could yeah, almost. No, for sure. Yeah. Um, it's probably not, but it's a little it's, weird. It's so close. I mean, it's, you know, the classic problem of there's definitely a male lead in a film, and the largest female role is that supporting her lead. She's the female lead in that she's the most substantial female character. But does uh, yes. she have enough screen time to constitute being a lead? I don't think she has enough screen time. She has an, enough, probably enough of an arc. I was going to say, the movie's kind of about her. I mean, the crux of the movie is their relationship. The movie is about him, and he's in love with her. I don't think the movie's about her enough for it to quite work. I think his arc is entirely about her. That is not true. That's ridiculous. It's about a lot of different things. It is not entirely about her. That is ridiculous. I think that's the core of the movie. No, his relationship with the band is also very important to the movie. I think it's secondary to his relationship with her. What's his relationship with her? She's she's this uh this sort you know, of this incandescent little fairy sprite. You it's know? it's this introduction to here's someone who's living an adult life, the opposite of what I have lived, especially if they are supposed to be only a year apart. Sure. You know, mm-hmm. where like he's lived this super sheltered environment and she's done everything full tilt. Yes. And he's so uh, sort of drawn in by that. I can't get over the Judy Dench one for struggle. That's insane. <laughs> Go on. Carry That's on. the weirdest <laughs> win so I have weird. ever heard. <laughs> that Miramax money, man. It really. What were the other four nominees for the SAG that year? Hudson? Was McDormand nominated? I'll look it up. Uh, finish your point. Okay. Look up. Um. I, I think that she represents him struggling with who he wants to be in the world. Yeah, but then she, like everything else, you know, kind of falls apart where he realizes like, oh, you're ridiculous and you don't do anything and everything you say is kind of, you know, vapid. Hence, hence the struggle. When he meets her, he wants to be her. And at the end of it, he realizes that, that he's, you know, maybe wants to be with her. Maybe. But that I think he also realizes that she's... Her life's a mess. She's a pretty, yeah, sad person. Right, and, yeah. Uh, and that he's got a long road ahead of him. Yeah. And, you know, he's an insightful dude. And he's found a lot of insight into them and into into her. And uh, I think she's the he's real gonna eye He's going to be a newspaper thing. journalist. I mean, he's yeah. going to be ma- a magazine journalist. Yeah. Um, everyone thought she was going to win the Oscar. The other SAG nominees were the three of the Oscar nominees minus Marsha. So you've got your Francis McDee. Mm-hmm. Katie your, Hudds. Uh, Kate Hudson, Judy Dench. Mm-hmm. For Chocolat, the winner. Jesus Christ. Uh, Julie Walters and Billy Elliot, who is wonderful oh, right. and should have won. So good in that. And then Kate Winslet and Quills. Everybody's favorite movie, Quills. Quills, Quills, Quills. That is so strange. The two two thousands an odd year. 
Yeah. It's, 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 you've got your gladiator and your traffic, which are very male movies that mm-hmm. don't have a lot of female. I mean, Connie Nielsen's pretty good. And Catherine Zeta Jones is pretty good. For some reason, neither of them click with the awards voters. I, uh, I think he could have nominated uh, Zi Zhang for Crashing Tiger. Yeah, but there was there was a whole fuck up there where they campaigned her as supporting when she's the lead, and they should have campaigned her as the lead and Michelle Yeoh as supporting. They did the other way around, and they fucked the whole thing. That yeah. was their problem. It, yeah. it was literally. I mean, she got a BAFTA nomination for supporting. Yeah. Oh my God, guys, can we get to the music? <laughs> Lock the gates. <laughs> Great time. Boom, I just shit my pants. <laughs> JustCoffee.com. Oh, God, he says that all the time. <laughs> Remember when all the podcasts were just WTF? That was like the only podcast. Yeah, you that could was the only to? format that people wanted to do. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then you were like, great. You're like two years in, you're like, I've now heard every comedian give an interview, a long form interview. Yeah. To each of the other comedians. Yeah, right, like right. it got to a point where it's like, so you've been doing open mics for a couple of years. Uh, tell me about your process. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, what? Yeah. Why are you interviewing yeah, these So how much time you got at this point? You got what? You got 40? You got you got a tight 20? <laughs> it was one of those things where it's like, you know, you were, are there, is there a saturation point? Like, will they eventually re- do all the comedians? And then you're, after like, a couple years later, you're like, yep, yep, they did it. They did all the comedians. But David, let me ask you a question. Yeah. So who are your guys? Ben. Ben, who are your guys? What do you mean, Mike? Cosby. Who are you guys? Oh, okay. who, are you, who are you watching? Who are you growing up? Who, who are you guys? They all say Cosby. Yeah. Uh, well, George Carlin. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was the best, right? I love that when he asks people who their guys are, and then when they say it, he just wants to talk about those guys rather than, rather than that person's career. Yeah. I always find it lame when he talks about music. Oh, boy. Yeah. Because he's down, like, really down. passionate, but he's also just like some weird old guy that's like going on and on about <laughs> oh, some God. dumb band. Uh, by the way, I'm recording WTF tomorrow. Yeah, that'd what? be great. Tomorrow I'm doing You're This American Life and then WTF. I'm going straight from WKRP to, in Cincinnati. That's where uh, This American Life records, right? Um, I don't know. Okay. Uh, <laughs> anyway. All right, so the film, let's start, Let's get to the film. Okay, well, what, what, the okay. Hudson thing. The Hudson thing. Okay, Kate Hudson, right. She was going to be big, and she was going to win the Oscar. She doesn't win the Oscar, she, but... Right, she already does a couple big movies after that that all sort of underwater. Four Feathers was like a massive flop that people thought was going to be a big Oscar play. Yeah, talk about, like, a sign of the times, that one, because what is it, Wes Bentley? It's got Heath. It's Heath, Heath Wes Bentley, and Kate Hudson were the three. Isn't there another girl in it? Another lady? Um, no, Jaimon Honsu is in it. Yeah, I don't know. So it doesn't land. She's in um, Gossip and About Adam, which she certainly shot before. Almost yeah, those, famous. Right, I think those two both were. She's in Le Divorce with Naomi Watts. Ew. Me and Richard Lawson. Oh, no, Richard was, was he talking? Yeah, Naomi Watts syndrome. He talked about it. Yes. On the podcast that's going to come out next week. Yeah, but that was uh, Merchant Ivory, right? Yeah. Um, You've got Alex and Emma. Uh-huh. It's a real string of shit. Oh, but the first of theatrically of those three movies released in 2003 is How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, which is a massive hit. Huge hit. But and and everyone goes, like. there we go. That's how she fits in. Then her next movie is Raising Helen, which bombs really hard, the Gary Marshall picture. Then her next movie is The Skeleton Key, which is a horror movie that's okay that doesn't do very well. And then her next film after that is You, Me, and Dupree. And then she's stuck in thinkless, like... Her career just doesn't go anywhere. Because then we go, okay, she's playing the girl in a Dane Cook movie. Um, Yeah, is that My Best Friend's Girl? Yeah, she's doing a, a shittier McConaughey follow-up. Well, wait, you didn't mention The Skeleton Key, did you? I did mention Skeleton oh, Okay, I said that didn't do that well. Uh, there's, um, excuse me, Bride Wars. Comes the year In after. which her hair is blue. Yeah, like a smurf. My hair is blue. 
Now, let's talk about who she dated. It's Blue! Okay, because she dated a bunch of terrible people. Well, at the time of the Oscars, sitting next to her when she had to pretend that she wasn't angry that she lost, it was the guy from Counting Crows, right? Yeah. Robinson? Uh, Keith Robinson, yeah. Not Keith Robinson. Keith Robinson's the guy. Oh, Chris. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. She Here's some of the people she's dated. Matt LeBlanc. Oof. Hey, that's a good choice. In the 90s. Like, yeah, we do, and we said oof. last week or, or however many weeks ago it was, we made it clear. We would we, we would date. We've no. got an hour. Okay, uh, Eli Craig, yeah. son of Sally Field, whoever that is. Okay. Chris Robinson, as you guys said. Was married to from, him. From the Black Crows, not counting crows. Oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, I, yeah. We talking Dax Shepard, right, next? Then they divorced, but they had a son called Ryder. Ugh. Uh, the National Enquirer said that she was painfully thin, and she sued them uh-huh. and won. Hey. Huh. Uh, and so, I assume said she had like an eating disorder. Yeah, I get it. And then, get it, then Muse frontman Matthew Bellamy, uh, the guy, the uh, you know, the sort of screechy guy. Yeah. Then that's over. Uh-huh. And so now I'm not sure what she's up to. Uh, I believe she's with uh, one of the Jonas Brothers now. Okay. I don't know if I'm talking out of school. She played a lesbian in Mother's Day. Oh, yeah. How was she in that? Bad. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty, sure, was. I'm pretty sure she was with Lance Armstrong, too. It's yes. Lovely. Isn't that Cheryl Crow? They both were with him, I believe. I believe- Lock the gates. Kate Hudson met Lance Armstrong on the set of Yumi and Dupree, where Lance Armstrong plays a pivotable supporting role. A pivotable? Yeah, a pivotable supporting role. <laughs> Is he like Piven? He's very Piveny. Uh, a, a film that will now be really weird to watch because it's all about how Lance Armstrong is unquestionably a figure of integrity who we should all Well, that happens in Dodgeball, too. He did that a lot. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Ew, you mean Dupree? And she dated Alex Rodriguez. Oh, yeah. Ugh. You all mean right, Dupree sorry. from the directors of Captain America Civil War. Yes, that is right. For the Russo brothers. Almost famous, though. Yeah. But anyway, so, yeah. We said Crudup. Never quite finds his spot after yeah. this movie. Hudson, same deal. Yeah. Hudson is more famous, but she's famous for some sort of weird, almost like, you know, cover of tabloids type fame. It's like she's sort of a brand. Yes. More than she is like a respected actress. Like, I remember Nine was supposed to be kind of a comeback for her. That flopped. Twas not. You know, I don't know what the answer to Kate Hudson's. Well, here's star my answer. And this is, is what we were saying. Like, you go like, man, but she was such a good actress when she started out. Look at Almost Famous. And then you rewatch Almost Famous and you're like, now we know all the tricks, you know? I watched this performance and it feels very studied to me. I don't think it's a bad performance. I, I'm not a big fan of this performance. I don't think it's a bad I performance think it's fine. either. But I think at the time it's everyone incredibly was incredibly like, mannered. Yes, that's she, the thing. She has this thing she does where she kind of like rests her cheeks on her hands. Yeah. Over and over again until you just want to, like, you know, shake her. I think... She, I don't really want to shake her. I think she... Good good apology. Uh, I think uh, she is someone who is incredibly aware of how she plays on camera. And going into this movie, like, knew exactly what, like, smile at this angle, the camera's here, she knows where the light catches her, you know? Right. And she's got a sort of effervescent personality. And I think she popped in this movie because it was like, for someone I've never seen before, that person just seems like they're so flowing and so like well, charismatic and natural. But also the film is so obsessed with her. Exactly. You know, I mean, the film is, she's such a, I mean, the whole thing, the whole idea that Cameron Crowe invented the manic pixie dream girl with Elizabeth down is kind of ridiculous because it like, it's all here. And, and Vanilla Sky. 
And Vanilla Sky, although Vanilla Sky is so half-hearted. I'm sorry, where he's I'm like, sorry, I'm sorry. Vanilla Sky. Vanilla Sky. Vanilla Sky. Vanilla Sky. Um, you know who's great in this movie? Who? Zoe Deschanel. You know who's great in this movie? Who? Michael Anagaro. Agreed. Uh, I think the opening uh, chunk's the Anna, best. Anna Garano and I've never Ang- known. Angarano, I have. However, you say. I have his never name. known. Uh, and P S H. Great. Jason Lee. Terrific. Yeah. Let's dig into the movie. That's ju- pretty good. Yes. Uh, let's dig into the movie. I just it's sort of this final thesis thing about Kate Hudson is I think looking back at the film now, it's clear that she she had a very limited set of tricks. This film utilized them all really well. Sure. And, like, diminishing returns, like, I think her performance doesn't play as well now because we're like, well, those are the same six moves she does in Raising Helen. And Raising Helen sucks, you know? Like, we know Indeed. we know what her moves are. It's like, you know, it's like Barry Manilow coming out and playing the same four songs over and over again. Yeah, at the Copa. Lock the gates! Right, yeah. Yeah, it's like if someone ended every single episode <laughs> by saying, Boomer lives! I just shit my pants! How? <laughs> Does coffee not go up? Uh, by the way, go to our store. You can get our blank check blend. <laughs> Breaking news, by the way. Yeah. Or on my phone. Adnan Syed of Serial getting a new trial. The Maryland man's murder conviction has been vacated or whatever. He's getting a new trial. Well, I want to remind our listeners that on episode one. We talked about one, it in episode one. Episode one of this podcast, when we threw down the gauntlet and said we were a greater mystery show than Serial, and we were trying to solve the mystery of what Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Mask. Then was about. we dropped the whole serial thing. Yeah, yeah. But we said, just so you know, Anon is guilty. We established that in Episode One <laughs> of this podcast. Um, maybe you know, maybe so, he's innocent. Well, I think we got to stick to what we said on this podcast. We yeah, got to have true. a consistent mythology. Almost famous. The year is two thousand. The film opens with, I, I think, yeah, I think you know, uh, save for Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's an entirely different class. My three favorite performances in the film after that are Anyurano, McDormand, and Zoe Deschanel. Anyurano is so good, and it's just very tough for Patrick Fugit to live up to in this film. I think he is also excellent. Fugit? Yes. I think that Fugit is just, he's got such a great look, yeah. and he's really sweet. He's got a really funny vibe. But when he has to do the dramatic moments, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work for me. Do you know what I like about him in those dramatic and he, moments. And this is his first movie. This is his much. first yeah, movie. You know. What I like about him in those moments, and, and whether or not this is intentional, I think it works. It feels like a kid out of his depth. Yeah. Like, even if it feels like, okay, as an actor, he's out of his depth and he can't pull off the full weight of this, it feels like someone trying to be an adult not knowing how to behave in those situations. Right. You're talking about, like, the scene in the hotel room where he's trying to save her life and stuff. Yeah, and there's a scene a little bit before when he has this sort of confrontation with... Hudson, yeah, with yes. the, you know, and he's kind of like tells her off. Yeah, he's kind of like pumping his fist. He's doing this. They funny sold you for fifty dollars exactly. in a case of mannequin. That doesn't yeah. work at all for me. That that's that's the scene I'm thinking of the most. You just you just did it almost better than he did. There's that little impression there. It's clunky, uh, but I but I think it works because he's a guy who doesn't know how to pull off what he's trying to do. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's fair. The movie gets away with it because yeah, you can have a sour patch kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I I think uh, Andy Rondo is definitely better. And you're always, you know, he's just so perfect. He's so perfect, and he's so funny. And it's we're talking about the Lipnicki thing. I mean, Crow mm-hmm. is great with kids. Yeah. And even when you get to the more problematic Crow movies that like we're going to cover, and yeah, the kids in Zoo are amazing. I think the daughter in Aloha is incredible. 
Um, yeah, she's really cute. She's, she's a good actress. Real, and the boy in Aloha is also great, Jay and Liebenhart. Um, yeah. who's a kid from Midnight Special. Oh, yeah, he was good in, yeah. Okay, yeah. He's really good with kids. Mm-hmm. Because he's a behavioral filmmaker with kids, there's less study behavior that you have to tear away to get people in a sort of organic state. Yeah. And Annie Rano is an excellent actor. He's grown up to be an excellent actor, but was an excellent actor from a young age. Um, this is a throwback to eating on mic, right? Yeah, um, no, I've been doing it uh, the last two episodes. Uh, we should mention, this film comes out in 2000. 1999, he was the second choice to play Anakin Skywalker in The Phantom Menace. We talked about it, I believe, on one of the Attack of the Clones yeah. episodes. I wonder how he would have been. It's hard to know. Saw his audition is, uh, you I know, they have it on the DVD. It. It's yeah. pretty good. I mean, but it also, it's weird because his style of acting, which is more human and naturalistic, even as a young, young child, doesn't totally fit in with the dialogue of Phantom Menace. Lock the gates. Lock the gates. So the film is an yep. autobiographical tale mm-hmm. of Cameron Crowe's life. Mm-hmm. I think it's, I don't know, I have never listened to the commentary, so I don't know how exact this tale is, you know. I forget all. which version it's on. Um, it's either on the bootleg or the uh, the theatrical, but on one of the two, there are different comedy, uh, commentary tracks for each one. On one of the two, um, the commentary is Cameron Crowe with his mother. And oh yeah, I've heard of this commentary. Is it good? It's very good. Yeah, and they um, talk about it a lot. Of course, his I, mom was in Jerry Maguire. She's in Vanilla Sky briefly. She's not in this though. She was in a scene that was cut out. There's okay. a really good deleted scene where she has a group that tries to get him off of rock music by showing him the satanic, and I think he mm-hmm. tries to win them over by playing Stairway to Heaven. Right, and this, right, and they and couldn't, they couldn't get, the, get rights. the rights. They shot the whole scene. They couldn't get the rights. But his mom is in it as someone else who uh, hates the rock and roll music. Um, it's it's pretty accurate. I forget which band it is, but I think there's a specific band that he toured with that it's pretty one-to-one on. He did write for Rolling Stone. You know, uh, Lester Bangs was his mentor. Uh, there's a credit at the end of the film that I'm says... trying to find the exact band it was because he says it's based on the Allman Brothers Band and the Eagles, mm-hmm. and uh, there's another big one. Leonard Skinnerd, and then there's some band named Poco. That I've never heard of. Sure. Right. Um, so it's like an amalgamation. Yeah. Um, the the uh, title card at the end of the film says, This motion picture is a work of fiction. The character Penny Lane is loosely based on an actual person. Most the- of the other characters in this photo play and all events are fictitious. All right, buddy. What's interesting is them singling out Penny Lane. Well, there's a real person who had the name Penny Lane spelt differently. P-E. P-E-N-N-I-E Lane. So do you think they had to put that in yes, to make it clear it wasn't guess. her? Yeah. She, uh, Penny Lane Trumbull was her name. But apparently there's also a couple other famous quote-unquote groupies, band-aids, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call them, who he probably was inspired by for that character. Now, I don't know if Cameron Crowe went on tour the band and then had this sort of like from afar crush on a groupie and then like rescued her when she took a quaalude overdose and then like she, you know, I, I'm sure that a lot of this romance was compressed into this story to, you know, give it more of an arc. And, and sort of an amalgam thing. I mean, I feel like if he was following enough bands on the road, this sort of thing probably happened a couple times and he made it into the one that mattered. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um... In the same way that, you know, it sounds like it was a couple bands, but more specific incidents. Yeah. Um, I want to say even that Poco was maybe the main influence because they were the band that never totally made sure, it. Sure, never hit. You know? 
Well, um, but so, okay, so the beginning of the movie, the best part of the movie, mm-hmm. in my opinion. I agree. Which is when he's little, buddy, mm-hmm. Cameron, he's like, thinks he's 14, but he's 11. Is that it? Or he thinks he's like 13, but he's 11? He thinks he's 13, but he's 11. Right. And, and it's sort of like, he's a little shrimp, and it's like about this moment where he figures out, because- his older sister prompts the mother, like, you got to tell him how old he really is. Because she's been kind of pushing him. Like, he, he like, skipped a couple grades. Deschanel's so good. Deschanel is wonderful. She's and this like 19 is, in this movie? I mean, this was when she was just getting, just starting to pop up and stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, how old was she? She, yeah, she's, like, yeah, 20. 19, yeah. 20, yeah. Uh, she's incredible. I mean, it's like it's you know, it's, it's surprising to me it actually. Her eyes are just insane. Well, I mean, she's I mean, got incredible eyes. Yeah. I mean, I always have made the argument that Zoe Deschanel is really like a sort of old studio system uh, movie star in that way. Like sure. an old MGM movie star in that she has like the defining facial characteristic mm-hmm. and she's got a very specific like energy and vibe. Like she's like a Greta Garbo type person where right. it's like there are the aesthetics that come with Zoe Deschanel. There's an attitude that comes with Zoe Deschanel. But if you know how to use that palette, you know, that that color mm-hmm. from the palette on the canvas, it's like incredible. It's so powerful. It's too bad she doesn't make movies anymore. Yeah. She's made one movie in the last five years. Do you know what it was? Uh, Trolls? Rock the Casbah. I think Trolls is the next one. That she's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, she's a voice in Trolls. Yeah. Uh, she's very good on New Girl. I just wish she was doing movies again, too. Yeah, but I mean, apparently that's a really punishing show to make. That's always been the story. So she just doesn't want to work when they're done with the season? Everyone says that that show is a nightmare to make. I like watching it. Me too. Love watching yeah. it. Yeah. Thanks for making it, guys. Yeah. But- Whew, boy. I mean, you, you don't even have to read between the lines with interviews with, like, Jake Johnson or Max Greenfield. They just clearly a crazy show to make. And obviously, she's in, like, most of the scenes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Whew, anyway. Interesting, interesting. Uh, so, there's this conflict between the mother and the sister. Mm-hmm. Crow has said the conflict is actually much worse in real life. Mm-hmm. And that they never totally reconciled, at least mm-hmm. at the time when he made the movie. Whereas in this movie, they seem to reconcile by the end. This is somewhat of a happy ending. Yeah. The mother is this like I mean, I mean, it's what it's the best one of the best things about the movie because she's not a stereotype. She's kind of hard to figure out. She's controlling, but she's also like artsy and very expansive in some ways. She wants her kids to be smart. But she's afraid of them, you know, being corrupted, right? It's like this weird she, push and pull. I think very true to life. You know, I mean, the reason she's not an archetype is because I think, you know, especially when you listen to the commentary track, this really is who his mother was pretty sure. accurately. And right. maybe she's mellowed out, you know, in the intervening years. I don't know. There's a line I'm going to paraphrase uh, later in the film where they say, like, you know, you listen, you hear stuff. Most people are just waiting for their next chance to talk. Yeah. And I think that's Crow's great ability when he is great is that he gets these very specific characters across because he actually does study human behavior. Right. And he doesn't reduce people to archetypes. Right. Um, I have a, a friend I will not cite on the podcast for obvious reasons, but a friend whose mother is very, very similar to this. Mm-hmm. Where there is the sort of, there's that early moment where she walks by the store and she corrects the guy painting in the window. It says, Mary Xmas. Yeah, right. And she she's like, Xmas, Xmas is not a word. word. Right. right. But she's not saying it to be mean. He goes like, thank you. And she goes like, you're welcome. Like, she feels like she has an obligation to help uphold the standard of culture right. that she feels is slipping. Yeah, and, I mean, I guess it is the early 70s, so she is beholding, like, a relatively new yeah. uh, influx of sex and drugs, sort of open, you know, free sex and drugs. Right. You know, like, so it's all a little terrifying to her. But she's not a nag. She's just like, this is not good, you know? Right. And she's, like, trying to get everyone to, like, cut through to them, like, compassionately. Right. But she is an incredibly square woman. Yeah. 
She's a real square. Yeah. She is. Benny, you got something to say? Uh, well, I was just thinking it's like she isn't uh, the kind of stereotype w- w- which you have in Forrest Gump with Jenny's parents, who mm-hmm. just kind of are like the typical, like, you're participating in this counterculture. You get kicked out of the house. Never want to see you again. Yes. So it was refreshing to see that. I think it is a masterstroke of this film that she lets him do it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that all the time she calls and she disapproves and she says you should come back, he wins her over. Yeah. There's never the sort of line in the sand moment where it's like, if you leave, you're not coming back home. I agree with you. There is, it, it kind of has to happen for the movie to happen. And there, but yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. Cause yeah. I think it makes it human, it makes it real. It makes, yeah. Um, he's 11. She's she so thinks good. he's 13 because so she, it, she's an amazing actress. We're lucky anytime we get to watch a Frances McDormand performance. Tis true. Uh, another actress, uh, who, who has never done bad work. Tis true. Yeah. Um, a pleasure and an honor. Thank you, Francis, for all the years of art you've given us. Yes. Thank you for all the yes, years. Yes, Francis, thank you for the art. Uh, God, we're both in a great headspace right now. Ooh, oh um, the, uh, the, yeah, the sister hates the mom. There's the great scene where she tells her off. Yeah. And, you know, says, you know, we, we moved Christmas to July because it was less commercial, all of this. Right. And she goes like, well, you know, everyone hates you. William hates you. And he goes, I don't hate you. And she goes, you do. You just don't even know it yet. Right. And there's this sense of like, she just has had enough. She now views the mom as the enemy. Yeah. William's in a place where he's frustrated with all the things that the mom does, but also does still love his mother. Yeah. And respect her a lot. I think her commitment to her values, you know? Right. And, and, and he's also on the cusp of puberty and he right. hasn't quite discovered all these emotions yet. You and know, and he yet. doesn't have friends. No. You know, he doesn't have allies. There's a shot he almost directly repeats from Say Anything, where it's when all the guys are outside, like the grocery, yeah. uh, and you go down the line and then the last guy is. Is the little kid, yeah. Right. He does this again with all the guys stroking their, their facial hair. Right. And then they make fun of him for not having pubes, and he makes it into a joke. Right. I did. I just shaved them all. Right. And then they're like, hey, pubes, you're pretty funny. Yeah. So you're getting like, okay, this guy's starting to figure out that his value is in being smarter than the other kids and using that, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, the sister runs away with her boyfriend. She does. I mean, she kind of leaves. So it's sort of a formal runaway because she yeah. leaves, like, in front of her mother. Yeah. But she leaves the records. A bunch of vinyl records. And she tells her brother to listen to Quadrophenia. By, mm-hmm. uh, no, no, by Tommy, by The Who. Yes, with a candle. With a candle, and then he could see his future. Mm-hmm. And you hear that, you know, the, uh, what's the song? Sparks by mm-hmm. The Who. You know, dun, 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 dun. That's so good. That's the best part of the movie. And then he's going through the records. There's a great sequence I love of him just stroking all oh, the yeah, record totally. covers. They're so gorgeous. And it's like these windows that are opening up. You know, he's been like locked in this room, and now he's seeing how wide the world can be. Uh, flashes ahead. To Patrick Fugit. Uh, he is now a... He's a uh, 15-year-old high schooler. Yes. He likes a rock senior, music. A senior, 15-year-old senior. Oh, he loves that rock and roll music. He's being mentored by Lester Bangs, and he's been writing freelance for, like, Cream Magazine or something, like the San Diego paper, I, I forget. Walks by a radio station where Polly Perret of NCIS is interviewing Lester Bangs and sort of goes up to him, and Lester Bangs is, like, trying to act like he's cooler than the kid, but can't hide the fact that he isn't any cooler than the kid. Yeah, sure, sure. You know, they're both smart, they just love music, and they're both nerds. They're both big nerds. But Bangs... Bangs is, like, banging on about, like, the guess who, who are, like, the lamest band, but, like, he gets it. Like, he's like, they're silly. Hey, hey, hey. 
Do you love guess the- Who is not a fucking lame band, no, David? I'm, ben, I love the Guess Who too, but like what I'm saying is like, at, come on, you know, at the time they are not quote unquote cool, right? Well, what he said, they have the courage to be buffoons. They have the courage to be silly. That's right. what I love about that yeah. defensive. He's them. like rock and roll should be silly. Like, there's I don't, like, no pretension. The Doors are pretending that they're profound, and right. the Guess Who is like, let's make some songs that make people want to dance. Okay, Um, and uh, yeah, they start this mentorship. And uh, he gets him a little assignment writing for Cream Magazine. Yeah. He goes, you know what? Uh, is Black Sabbath is in town? Yeah. Right. You should go try to get him with them. So he goes outside. The mom drops him off at the concert. Yeah. I love you. Oh, I love you. I love you. Everyone yells out. You right. know, right. she says the I love you. It's embarrassing. I, I like she that. She does, uh, don't do drugs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. But I like that, that she, you see it dawning on her that she can't do this shit. Yeah. You know, as she's like driving away. Yeah. That, that's not going to yeah. help. It's so shocking, and to she her. just lost a kid, so she doesn't want to lose yeah. another one. Yeah, right. right. No, that's the thing. She that's does a big all. Thing. That's why she lets him go, and that's yeah. why she's moderating her behavior slightly. Right, is because she knows she. She's like, I was just trying to do the right thing. Did I not? Like, right. She's having a conversation with herself that I think probably a lot of parents have when mm-hmm. their kids become teenagers. Yeah, she's like, I'm gonna let him do the thing that he wants to do, and just try to instill in him the right set of values so the thing doesn't corrupt him. In her mind, right. So he sneaks and he meets Kate Hudson. He meets the Band-Aids. The guys won't let him fucking in. They won't let him in. No matter what, they won't let him in. Yeah, the big guy who's also in Jerry Maguire, that big guy. I don't know what his name is. Then he talks to the Band-Aids and they try to get him in, but the guards still won't fucking let him in. And then he sees Stillwater. Stillwater, the band, who are a fake band. Right, and they're waiting outside. You've got Billy Crudup as Mm -hmm. Russell Hammond Uh and Jason Lee as Jeff Beebe. Beeb? Beebe. Beebe, because they almost call him Beebe. And a couple other guys. Yeah, two other guys. Uh, and, and the, the great Noah Taylor is their manager. Yes. And he introduces himself as a journalist, and they're like, oh, the enemy. Yeah, the enemy. Yeah. And then he's like, you're, you know, your guitar is incandescent. Incendiary. Incendiary. That's yeah, what it is. Yeah, and he can't pronounce it. And he goes, like, you're the truth. And then they go, like, well, don't stop now. Come with Come us. Come on, man. So I'm then they, incendiary, too. Yeah. They pull him in. He's scene. with the band. Yeah. And he's talking to them. And this is where Crow is great. Yeah. And, like, this is where he's fucking playing with fire. It's the best. It's yeah. like, it's so exciting. Like, yes. this, this experience, and he renders it perfectly. Yeah. He's great at the positive. Yes. That's what this movie excels at, is the, the fun stuff and, like, the excitement of this. And I'll say this, too. As someone who did not live through this time period or this scene, sure. right? Yeah. You sort of just get a sense sometimes when you're watching a movie where you're like, this feels like what it must have felt like. Sure. You know? Yeah. Where, like, you can't compare it to a real-life experience, but you're like, this feels like it was accurate. Right. As someone who was part of a uh, massively unsuccessful attempt to reproduce what it feels like to be in the music scene in the 1970s, right. this just feels right. The dynamic of like how everyone kind of knows each other, yeah, yeah. the banter, even just the visuals of, it, it feels pretty unstudied, mm-hmm. you know, and just effortless and fun. And he, I mean, the the psychology of Jason Lee in this movie is really, really strong. This is one of my favorite performances in the movie. And I've really yeah. been ragging on Jason Lee, but he's great. He's great in this, in this movie. This is probably his best performance ever, right? This has to be. I'm trying to think of other Jason the Lee Incredibles. Well, he's good in The Incredibles. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, oh, he's great in Cop Out. What? I don't even remember him in Cop Out. Yeah, he's funny in Cop Out. He's, just, he's got a camera. <laughs> is he the, the guy who's marrying... His daughter? Y- yes. Yeah. Yeah, he is, right? Yeah, or he's married to his ex-wife. No, maybe that's it. I think yeah, that's what it is. that's it. What a shit movie. Yeah, that movie fucking blows. We've blown, we've blown, we've, we've uh, talked about that movie a lot on this podcast. Yeah, we've given that movie a lot of negative blowns. Yep. Yeah. 
Um, negative Blowns, uh, let's uh, have it catch on. Uh, tweet it at uh, Barack Obama every morning at 10 a.m. <laughs> no, 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 we already did that one. Okay. Um, so uh, he gets backstage, he meets everybody, he realizes, cool. he tries to introduce Penny to Russell. Sure, and then he realizes they know each other. Yeah. 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 But that's my favorite fugitive moment in the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Is he goes, oh, Russell, Russell, you, you got to yeah. meet Penny Lane over here. Yeah. And she goes, hi, nice to meet you. And he goes, hi, nice to meet you. And they pretend they don't know each other. Mm-hmm. And they cut to a shot of Fugit, like holding, he's like holding his notepad in his teeth. And he's right. so excited that he's making connections. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's just a great reaction shot. Yeah. Uh, and now they're like, you got to come with us. You got to come with us to California. You got to come with us in these other stops. And he goes to his mom and like negotiates with her. And she's like, as long as you don't miss any tests. As long as you're there for graduation. Yeah. Um, but also, yeah, he kind of gets this cold call from Ben Fonctoris, who's like the famous editor of Rolling Stone. Yeah. And who's like, yeah, like, uh, William Miller, how are you doing? He's like, yes, hello, I am yeah. William, you know. And he's still water, you know. How about that? And he's like, great, 3,000 words. He pitches still water. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. $700. Yeah. Right, he's like, yeah, I can just get you 700 And he's silent. He's like, fine, 1000 And William Miller drops his pencil. Yeah, because I mean, what was that? I mean, that's a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and the game is on, as Sean Connery would say. He's on the road with Lock Stillwater. The gate. <laughs> oh my! Sean Connery is Mark Maron. How I just <laughs> shit my pants, Boomer. <laughs> so who are you guys? Colin, Pryor, Cosby. <laughs> no, see, because I used to work the door at the comedy store. <laughs> I was with Sam Kennison and that whole crowd. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, what's the lawnmower guy's name? The lawnmower guy's name? <laughs> no. What did you That's say? Jeff Faye. Yeah. Uh, no, no, uh, the lawn the lawn order guy, you know. Uh, oh, who? Jerry uh, Orbach? No, no, the comedy guy. What is his name? Richard Belzer? Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember Richard Belzer used to MC. This <laughs> took me so long to get to that. Yeah, it a My long mind long. went blank. What's that guy? I could see him. You know. Belzer. The Bells. The Bells, yeah. The Bells. And the Bells was great. I, I remember the time that Keenan Ivory Waynes came up to me backstage <laughs> and said, I'm just going to do a jazz set. People who like this movie are so mad at us. It's Damon Waynes, but he tells that one story fucking every other episode. Does he? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I saw Damon to... Wayans. I said, what material are you going to do tonight? He goes, man, I'm just going to do jazz. <laughs> All right. I so... love this movie. We're just both loopy right now. Yeah, we're loopy. I, I don't love this movie. I think it's okay. Loopy Lou. He goes on the road with him. I mean, there's not much plot to this movie. No, From there's this point not. On... Then, there's, I mean, especially if you're watching the untitled yes. cut, then there is an hour and a half of not much plot. Right. Of them bouncing from town to town. The relationship between Penny and Russell deepens. Mm-hmm. Uh, William keeps trying to get interviews with Russell. He keeps, like, this recurring thing. He keeps trying to interview him. Russell keeps blowing him off. Which, let's say this. For movies like this that are kind of anecdotal, right? Yeah, yeah. And that are just sort of, like, a series of events and are not very plot-driven, they do need something like this. Like, Crow is smart enough dramatically to understand, like... There's some sort of goal that you need to He's got to get the interview. It's the one thing he can't do. So that everything else that's happening is, like, a sidetrack from... In the same way in this podcast, you know we got to get to the end of the movie that we're talking we about. We do, and boy, do we. So all the side tangents are just like, okay, but we know where we... Come yeah, on, guys, yeah, move yeah. it along, you know? Right, right. Um, it, it, works, it works in that way that every scene, they keep on reminding you he needs to get an interview with Russell. So, I mean, there's a lot of little story things going. Like, there's this sort of tension between Jeff and Russell over, like, who's the front man. Yeah. 
because it seems like Russell's the songwriter and the guitarist, and he's very handsome. Yeah. Jeff's not unhandsome, but he's kind of, you can tell, he's sort of the John Adams yes. to Russell's George Washington. You yeah. know, he's kind of abrasive yeah. and a little full of himself. Yeah. Yeah. He's, there's just something annoying about him. Well, and he tries very hard. Yeah. He's constantly saying, like, just make us look cool. Just make us look cool. And rewriting his stuff. Yeah. And Russell is more animatic. Like, he's... Yes. Which makes him cooler, is that he's harder to pin down, whereas Jason Lee wants to seem enigmatic. Now, the struggle of this movie is the negative stuff, Mm -hmm. I would say. But I think it does a pretty good job making it clear that Russell is not a soulful guy. In a, in a way. Like, He's a little hollow. He wants to party. Yeah. He wants to hang out with chicks. He wants to play his guitar, you know, right. and just like space out. He doesn't seem to be in it for like, you know, whatever, in it for the music, in it for the art. He doesn't dislike the music, but, you know, like it's not trying to make him out to be some visionary. And there's this constant refrain from Lester Bangs of like, that's over, you yeah. know? That was the 60s, and we lost. Yeah. And now it's like a corporate thing, rock, you know? But it's even the difference between, like, you know, what, what Lester Bangs says about, like, at least they have the courage to admit that they're buffoons. Yeah. Like, Jason Lee won't admit that he's a buffoon. Yeah. Right. And, and Russell just right. kind of goes Russell's like, eh, like oh, yeah. come on, man, I don't know. I don't know, I just like doing this. And That's why he won't be interviewed, maybe. Right. Yeah. But yeah. there's this refrain from everyone around him that, like, he could be great. Like, he could be a rock god. And it's because he has the look. And he's he has the, the aura. And he has the technical skill, right? Right. But you get the sense that, like, because a couple times people go, like, this band is good and you could be great. Why are you there with them? And Noah Taylor even says that to him a couple times. Just, like, finish up the tour and then you're going to go on to bigger things. Sure. You know, this is the band you started with. Right. But it feels like, I don't know if he has enough of his own kind of, to to paraphrase Lester Bangs this movie, has enough spine. Yeah. To do it on his own. No, he, and like... He, he has to be a piece of someone else's thing. And, and he then, can be the most exciting piece. Yeah. But they're kind of an echo of better music. Like, yes. And like, the movie doesn't make that explicit, but it's sort of implicit. You know, like, you know... They're like, pretty good. They're not yeah, exceptional. There's I nothing mean, really thrilling about them. That's one thing the movie does well, considering that obviously the impossible challenge of having a fake band with like, new music, you yeah. know. Is that it's never going to sound like they're the Beatles or what? You know, you're yeah. never going to think like, oh, these guys are obviously. So it's not trying to make them be the best. They're mid tier, yeah, and they might be getting better. Yeah, yeah. well, they had Peter Frampton write some of the songs. Yeah, so. They did. Yeah, it's not going to be good. And, and those ones Ben's came got a alive. Lot of opinions. Let's say that those songs came alive. Good. Let's pause for the joke. Thank you. Uh, okay. But um, bum ching. So yeah, what happens? He goes around. He like tries to write the shit, story. He keeps on know? calling up his mom. He keeps on going one more week, one more mom week. Mom keeps bugging him. You know, so you got Penny with her band-aids who are played by like Verizon Balk and Anna Paquin and somebody Bijou else. Phillips. Bijou Phillips, right. And uh, they de-virginize him in a hotel room. Yeah, which is like fine. You know, that scene's fine. It doesn't. That scene kind of almost feels like an afterthought. What do you think of that scene? That's a scene. Yeah, I like it. It's a little cutesy because then he like gets the call from Ben Fontoris like the the morning after. Yeah, and like the girl answers the phone. And he's like, "Hey, man, like I'm not paying you to blah blah blah." Yeah, I mean that's a running thing in this movie is that like uh he he'll call up and be like, "Kid, we need this story," and then right. he'll say things that are so exciting to them that they're like, "Fine." You have twice as many words. Right. Another it's going week on to work cover. on it. Yeah, right. yeah. Like the story keeps on getting bigger and bigger, even though he has shown them none of it. Yeah, which is hard to wrap my head around as a yeah. as a person who writes things. And I know the seventies were different. The thing that's really hard for me to wrap my head around is the end, though. That's what I actually can't understand. 
the idea that just Billy Crope denying it would kill the entire story. But we'll get to that. Whatever. Um, yeah. There's, uh, I, I, you know, it, I have a hard time remembering what's in the original and what isn't. I feel like there aren't that many wholesale scenes in the bootleg cut that weren't in the original. It's a lot. It's of, more just a lot of expanded stuff. The yeah. scenes are are more spaced out. Sure. The film is more leisurely. I think. Um, I like the theatrical cut better. Oh, before you said not. I know. Yeah. And now rewatching it, and I'd seen the theatrical cut pretty recently. I think um, watching the bootleg cut feels like reading the novel that the movie was based off of. Yeah, sure. Where right. it's like all this is interesting information, but it's not crucial. Yeah, and all of it like adds value. Yeah. yeah but yeah. I think the movie flows better in the theatrical version. Um, I do think there's a gain from the length just in terms of you really feel like you're on the road with them because you're spending so much time with them. Yeah, I buy that. And the scenes have that sort of looseness just... to them. But I think Cameron Crowe's good when he's precise. Yeah, I do too. When he's kind of cutting But then McGuire's yeah. really long and you but don't it's, feel but it. But it's also sharp. Yeah, you don't feel it at all. Yeah, that's a lean movie even it's, though it's – Because it's, that is a lean film for how much story it's telling. Yeah. This movie, I just don't ever get much more than a surface sense of like a Ru- of Russell or um, Jeff or you know like I just I agree, but I, I think that's kind of like, I yeah. think that's kind of the point. But it's so long. Ugh. Hey, can I talk about a scene I like? Yeah. Yes, please. Uh, I like when he goes to the high school party. Well, that's right. We should mention that yes. big high school party scene. Yeah, yeah. That's like in the middle of the tour. Yeah, we might just talk about scenes in a random order now because it's well, no, hard to remember what it's order the scenes came. Russell yeah. drinks about a bunch of acid. Yeah, they give him a red solo cup full of acid yeah. and beer. Yeah, and he gets on the roof and he says, "I am no, a golden no, no, god." No. You're cutting over the best part, though. What's the best part? I like when he's talking to the kids and he's like, "You're real, man." Yeah, your friends are real. I like literally could have heard him do that for like ten hours. It's really good. And also, the kids are so well cast. Anytime they cut to one of the kids listening, and it's just like some teenager who doesn't know how to close his mouth. You right. see this table here, man? This is real. <laughs> yeah. Hey, that clock on the wall? Real. And he sort of says that he's going to move there and just live there with those kids. Like that's, <laughs> He's found his nirvana. When Noah Taylor like wraps him up with a blanket and tries to get him out of here, he's like, just finish the tour, and you can come back here. You can live here the rest of your life. Right. Like That's what he has to tell him to get him out of there. Uh, there's one scene I think is worth talking about that's only in the bootleg cut. Okay. Which is the Kyle Gass radio scene. It's a fun scene. It's a fun Kyle scene. Kyle Gass falls asleep and they all start going like, they say saying the, the F word. They're on a radio show where the host presumably is on heroin or some sort of sedative. Sure, maybe cool ludes. Right, ludes and is uh, sort of spacing out and repeating himself and getting the details wrong. And then at one point just full on snoozes off. And they just start like, oh, let's fuck with the system. Let's let's yell fuck a lot. But then yeah. it becomes the two of them airing out their bullshit. Um, right. Jeff right. And Russell. Or it's like, why won't you say that you think I'm great? Like, except for now, you know? Yeah. 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 All right. um, that seems really good. I mean, I do think the crux of this is like he can't figure these guys out because sure. there's well, not also, much there. But also he's really excited to, you know, be friends with them. And yeah. so the like there's that bleeding edge of his like objectivity yeah which is like what lester banks is worrying him warning yeah. him off it's like they're gonna try to be your friend and like give you drugs and give you alcohol it's and gonna you're gonna get a party it's you gonna, got an honest face he's, yeah he's so good in yeah. those scenes just promise me one thing it's that, almost that you be honest and unmerciful it's almost the problem with the movie is that he lays it out so perfectly in those two minutes lester yeah. bangs that when it's happening you're like yeah no i get it because 
Lester Bangs already said it. The two scenes, I mean, the first one where he lays it out, and then the like, the only currency left in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone else when you're uncool. Yeah. Is those two scenes encapsulate everything the movie's trying to say in and of themselves? Right. Um, they're beautifully written. Right. And they featured the the greatest uh, film actor of all time. Philip He's Hammer. great. Yeah. He's a good actor. Uh, was. Uh, sure. He's very dead now. I know. Yeah. Uh, have I ever told you I have this stupid thing where, like, it happened when Ledger died, too, where I, like, don't believe it, and until I hear the autopsy report, I'm like, maybe he's going to wake up. I don't feel that way, but I was certainly shocked for both of those actors when they died. Yeah. But I didn't have to wait until for the, the autopsy, autopsy report. I was like, oh, fuck. Maybe he was just sleeping, but now they've cut into him, so even if he was sleeping, he's dead now. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm an emotional child. Yes. Um... The crux of the film becomes, I really think, uh, his relationship with Penny Lane and this feeling that um, she is in love with Russell. Mm -hmm. Russell's ex-wife and now current girlfriend is back home. And he's never going to leave her for Penny Lane. Wait, they're, they're, he's, that's her, his ex-wife? They at one point say his ex-wife, current girlfriend, whatever. Oh, okay. Huh. I didn't pick up on that. I just thought she was uh, his wife or whatever. I, I think... I, I don't know. They yeah, say ex-wife I'm not challenging you this. I remember. And there's the affair they had. He's got like, a particular woman. It's been on and off, yes. but but the idea is he's never going to fully leave her. Right, no. And, of course, Penny's supposed to be much younger than him. Like, it's an unrealistic. And she is supposed to be, like, this above-it-all, super cool, like, Band-Aid. Mm-hmm. You know, she's like, I've seen it all. Like, I, you know, I know not to have sex. I know not to fall in love with she's these She's like guys. the progressive groupie. Like, and she's the one who, t- it, it, all the other girls like call her, you know, they're, she's yeah. their, like, den mother. And yeah. she, like, treats them, you know, shows them how to respect themselves. And she's, like, part of this thing of, like, it's about the music. We're not here to sleep with the guys. It's about the music, which is what she's telling herself. And she says a bunch that, like, Russell could be great, and I'm here to help make sure that happens. Right. Like, she feels like she has a responsibility to help the band reach their potential. Yeah. Which is very self-aggrandizing. Um, but the whole time, she's sort of in denial of the fact that she's just, like, a kid with a crush. Yeah. You know? She's a kid in love with a guy. Much like William is a kid with a crush. Yeah. Yep. Uh, they're not so different, the two of them. We're not so different, you and I lock the gates. Uh, pow, I shit my pants. But they... Um, you know, she thinks she is worlds beyond him, which she is in a certain way because, you know, she's lived so much more than he has sure. in such an eh. unsheltered way. But, but she mostly also, all she's done is hang out on, at rock shows and done right. a lot of, like, drugs and drinking, right? Well, William has a greater emotional intelligence, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, he's... I, I, here's what I find interesting about their relationship. Yeah. Uh, he gets really upset when he sees her run to Russell over and over again knowing that Russell is never going to take her that seriously. Right. He doesn't get possessive. No. Which I like. He Yes. He this gets upset. Yeah, he's sad. Yes. But he's not. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not. He he doesn't think he's going to wrestle her away from Russell or whatever. I don't know. No, and I think he also is like, if she's happy with him, that's fine. But he has this pain that's like, she should be with someone who appreciates her, which he thinks he does. Right. But in reality, and I think the film acknowledges this, he only views her as like a manic pixie dream girl. Uh, for sure. For I, sure. I think the film that's, that's deconstructs that's, her enough. I agree. Even though she's I a agree. mystery at the end that you realize it's like, well, she's putting on this air. I think you're right. I think the film is smart enough to 
realize that yeah, it's that she's being treated like an object and acknowledge it. And that she also tries obviously to present herself like, that way because that's how people find her exciting. And obviously if she she's, just seems she's traded for some beer. Right. You know, so. But she just wants to seem like this random figure who runs into people's lives and makes everything more exciting, you know? And she's in denial about her name, where she's from. I mean, all of this. Right. Uh, yeah, and it isn't until, you know, um, he sees them make the deal at a poker game to trade her to a different band for $50 in the case of Heineken. Yeah. He still doesn't tell her. He's yeah. really offended by that. Russell sees well, it. Well, it's insane. It's insane. Yeah. Is that a thing? I presume it must, yeah. It must be something, right? Yeah, we live in a terrible world. That definitely has happened before. It's like yeah. the only moment in the movie that is really realistic about that groupie culture. Yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, yeah. I was even just looking before we recorded, like, some of the legends about Led Zeppelin, you know, like the shark incident. What's the shark incident? Oh, God, it's awful. <laughs> Basically, uh, at a festival in Seattle in 69, uh-huh. There is this legendary story that uh, their uh, Zepp's road manager, Richard Cole, wrote in a this is uh, very, biography. Very much alleged, by the way. Yes, uh-huh. but the story is that they took shark parts and put it into a groupie. So that's a real thing. And then also, they- it's confirmed that Jimmy Page... Dated a fourteen-year-old girl. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That kind yeah, of that's shit happens. Very well known. Yeah. Uh, and you know what? It's it's this thing where like, how many years later, and we're like, we, you know what? Wag. I'm wagging my finger at you. Yeah. Here, you can Jimmy call Page. us the hashtag. Just, just the three, to be clear, the three waggers. Is... We're wagging away in this I, studio. Yeah, we're wagging want, our fingers. Just, no, just, no, no. Just to spare us from any legal trouble, there is absolutely no evidence that the shark thing happened. It was just a story that got sort of told a lot. Sure. Okay. Nobody knows if that. That hasn't been said. Ben, are you saying they fucked her with a shark fan? <laughs> that's what I'm saying. And I don't think that's cool. I think I don't all either. that shit was terrible. I don't yeah. either. You know who I bet didn't like that? The shark. Well, I think the shark was already dead. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. He probably didn't like that part either. All right. So. What of the shark, I say? After a lot of. Well, there's the teen party, the I am a golden god. Mm-hmm. It's a fun scene for crud up, all that yeah. stuff. After all that. The band kind of starts to splinter, right? There's the scene where they all sing Tiny Dancer, which is kind of them making up. Which is after the Golden God. Yeah, after the Golden God when he's all like washed out on drugs. And William Miller says, I need to get home. Yeah. And she goes, you are home. And then she does a Kate Hudson. Fucking Garden State nonsense. Listen to this. It'll change your life. Hold me closer. Lock the gates. Yeah, but like, I mean, he did it first. You know, it's like uh, yeah, yeah he did it first. I mean, that's what I find fascinating. Boop, 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 boop. What I find fascinating about Cameron Crowe like creating the archetypal manic pixie dream girl in Elizabethtown is like he was like, oh, you have to explain how she's playing a part. Yeah, like you have to explain that like she's lying to herself and she wants to seem like she's just effervescent because she's in denial about like her real life. And then he just went like, no, what if it's just someone who acts kooky all the time? They sing Tiny Dancer. Uh, great That's song. Sweet scene. And then they get, they have this sort of accident. You know what song it was supposed to be originally? What? Fishbone. Yeah, right. I did actually know that, which is crazy. Uh, Tiny Dance is a good choice. That was a joke. It, that's uh, Fishbone's the Say Anything song. Oh, fuck. No, but it is. there is a different song it was supposed to be. Yes, but I can't well, remember what that was. No, but it's some ridiculous fucking song. I, I, I just read this. All right, Okay, look it up. There's the thing where he electrocutes himself. Keep doing the plot while I look this up. 
Oh, well, this is the, the most important manager. scene to talk about. The electrocution scene? Yes. Okay. Yes, because, okay, so they're on is it stage. Because it's old fashioned technology? They're on stage. Yes. I mean, Ben, what do you Hell think yeah. of. Oh, I love it. As a man, as a man of the mics. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. You gotta, ground your, you gotta ground your wires, baby. Gotta ground them wires. Um, he gets on stage. Billy Crudup goes to the mic, I guess, to do some background vocals for some crowd work. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's Crudup. And can I sidebar something I really like in this movie? Sure. Most movies where you have actors playing members of a band. Specifically, the singers. Sure. It is very unconvincing. Yeah. A because most of the time you have the actor lip syncing, and it's very visibly evident that is the case. And B, this sort of physicality of a musician on stage is very specific and sort of organic. And I feel like when actors do it, it usually feels pretty studied and mimicky. I agree. Jason Lee does an excellent job yeah, in this he's movie. So, he's he's very good. He's lip syncing, but. They chose a vocalist who sounds enough like Jason Lee's singing voice, speaking voice that works, and also just his sort of movements on stage and his mic work and everything are really, really spot on. But I they, can't find this song. They yeah, go to the on. concert. It's Summer Lunatic. It's literally like a Blue Oyster Cult song or something awful. Fear the anyway, Reaper? Don't fear It's not that, but yeah. Anyway. Uh, they, he grabs the mic. And he electrocutes yeah, himself. Cool. And he passes out on stage. And yeah. they're like, fuck, we're getting the fuck out of here. Lock the gates. That's why we got to talk course, about that. That's this is the most the important scene. scene in the movie. Yeah, they, they, they bail on the concert. They're the opening act. Yes. And they don't give him 25 minutes or whatever. And yeah. so they just, you know, Noah Taylor's like, just get in the band, mates. Yeah. Hello, mates. And Mark Maron's like, whoa, 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 whoa. He's great. What's going on here? Really What's going gets on here? I didn't face. get my 20 minutes. And he's like, you endangered my band. It's You're like fucking short, unprofessional. short hair Marin. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and weirdly, like, no facial hair. No, I thought he did have, maybe not. I can't remember now. It doesn't matter. I feel like he doesn't. You don't see, I mean, you kind of mostly see his back because yeah. he's kind of in uh, No Taylor's I face. I think I peeped a little soul patch. Oh, he's got a little soul patch? Hold me closer. The tiny, tiny soul dance. patch. <laughs> So he says, he says, and I'm going to do a perfect impression of right now. He says, lock the gates. And they do, but then they go through the gate. Yeah, they go through the gates. He's got a bunch of really good lines that he always talks about having ad-libbed, where when the guy grabs him. Oh, wait, no, he he just did that on the spot? uh, Not lock the gates. That was in the script, I believe. Oh, okay, okay. But the ones he ad-libbed are, uh, uh, hey, man, watch the shirt. Whoa. Wow, great, that's a memorable line. line. Uh, when Noah Taylor's trying to fight him, he goes, well, what is that, some Bruce Lee shit? Oh, yeah, that's right. Maybe yeah. those are the only two that were impressed, but he talks about that a lot. the cuff. Off the gates. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so after that incident, a little while later. Well, there's a really good visual gag at the end of this sequence. What is it? Bruza Balk doesn't make the bus. Oh, yeah, she runs into a pillar. Yeah, and it's one continuous shot, which is like, that's it's when a good he, shot. It's in the trailer, I think. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's also where you see that this movie cost $70 million. Because that's like a tough sequence that they had to allot like half a day to pull off. Yeah. And it's one continuous shot, a yeah. moving bus, and when you've done she's a take, doing you have this to go back. monologue where she's like, your mother called and she told me to tell you that she knows what's going on. And like, you know, like, because the mom keeps calling. Right. She calls, she talks to um, Russell at one point and really puts the fear of God into him. The Frieza Balk scene, I think, is really Frieza good. Balk the Balk scene's one. great where she, Frieza Balk is like, you, you know, raised a, a boy who a respects women. Exactly, yeah, yeah And yeah. that's like, I, I appreciate, I see what you've done. You did right. a really good job for your right. son to turn out this Which well. Which is accurate. Yes, 100%. Right, but the mother is also like, listen to me, I know what's going on. And then <laughs> Frieza Balk thinks she's going to win her over. She hears what she does and she goes, by the way, I'm the maid. Right, right, yeah. right. Um, but yeah, Frieza Balk runs into a wall while trying to relay the message and running alongside the bus. It's a yeah. really good visual gag. Sure. And then within the same shot without cutting, 
William just looks forward like terrified. Yeah, yeah. And it's a really good. Uh, it's a really good moment. Um, <laughs> yeah. So then eventually Jimmy Fallon playing uh, the. Uh, uh, the, he's it, the guy who manages the Rolling Stones. It's not he, he has a slick a guy. He has a different name in yeah. the, in this, but he's based on the Rolling Stones. Old Jimbo manager. Fallon. He looks like early Steve's Jobs. Steve's Jobs. You know Steve's Jobs. Yeah, he looks like early Steve's Jobs, who invented the Apple's twos. He does though. He's got the Apple's twos glasses on. No, he does. Sure. And the Steve's Jobs is hairs. Yeah, sure. And Fine. the Steve Jobs Fine. is beards. Fine. Fine. Ooh, no, I thought his hair was more. What's that documentarian who did the Civil War? Ken Burns. He's got Ken a Ken Burns kind of. He does have do. a real Ken Burns cut. That's what he has, and he <laughs> promises a more professional setup, including a charter plane. Yep. Which means pennies out of the band. Uh-huh. You know, out of the entourage. But they'll be able to make more dates. Yeah. If they get on the plane, he does want them to miss dates. They want to make more money. He goes, do you, you want to give up on all this? The t-shirts, the everything. We haven't talked about the t-shirt scene. But they say. T-shirt scene's good. Yeah. I like that scene because it's Noah Taylor's like, all right, mates, you know, got the new t-shirts. Great. And he like picks up. He's like, forget about it. No, <laughs> Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. He just leaves in the box. But this gives them, right, the t-shirt is Billy Crudup and then the other three guys are out of focus. And it's so silly that would never happen, but yeah. it, it's perfect. It's, it's perfect. a very good scene for, you know, to symbolize what's going on. Yeah, and um, they now have an excuse. They're able to go, well, Penny, you can't because we're on a plane. But they traded her for some Heineken maybe or something. Right, but they make Locked it sound the like, yeah, like no, that was the only reason. And she's like, oh, it's okay, I'll just get to New York myself. And William freaks out and he's like, don't you get it? Like, they don't care about you, you know. Uh. Yeah. Uh, there's a really weird addition in this. Uh, oh, what's the weird addition? Director's cut, which is the Fallon scene, which is longer than it is in the theatrical, where he yeah. goes on the big speech and he, of course, Good has scene. to work in his famous Mick Jagger impression. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then he goes like, "So, what do you guys think?" And they go like, "We'll think it over." And he goes, "Oh, no, no, no! I'm not right, auditioning right, right. for you. You're auditioning for me. Like, I came here to debate whether or not I want." So I'm going to step outside and decide whether or not I want to work with you guys. Yeah. And they walk out, and there's silence. And they go, what do you think? And one of the guys goes, I miss him already. Uh-huh. And the theatrical, it cuts straight to Fallon in the foreground, the band behind them, walking Going out of a plane. The, and, right. yeah, 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 yeah. And it's a really good cut. Yeah. In the bootleg, they add in a three-minute sequence of uh, Kate Hudson dancing with flower petals in a gymnasium to Cat oh, Stevens. Oh, yeah. Right, right, right. To the Wind by yeah. Cat Stevens. Yeah. Which is a song I love. Nice song. You know, in a, in a sort of Malicky kind of just like, oh, it's music and physical movement kind of way. Yeah. The scene's fine. It's the absolute worst place they could have put well, that scene. Well, that's where he put it. Because it has nothing to do with what's happening before or after, and the whole joke is in the cup between When you those have sex images. with someone, your body makes a promise. Whether or not you, you know. swallowed my cum, that means something. Yeah. Okay. That's a little teaser for our next episode. Lock the gates, and so they go to New York. Pow! I just shit my pants. And I guess they're in New York. Where lives. They're in New York City. Yep. What the fuck even happened? In New York. Right. What he, what happens? Oh well, no, no. no. What happened? Forget New York. It's the big. Oh. This big scene is where they're on the plane and they think it's going to crash. On airplanes. Please come on. I hate that song so much. It's like the worst song. You have to admit, it's the worst. Song. It's funny sometimes. <laughs> My, you know, I like the city. But there's the plane scene where yeah. they all confess it to each other, which I think is like so horrible and contrived. I like it. Yeah, but you got to admit, it's a little horrible and contrived. Classic comedy. <laughs> KK, classic comedy. They all slept with his wife, and one of them's gay, and yeah. obviously William lays into, you know, uh, the whole band, Russell in particular, yeah. for treating Penny like shit. Yeah. 
And then, oh, no, in New York, of course, is when Penny tries to kill herself and William rescues right. her. That's what happens in oh, New York. Oh, no, hold on. You guys skipped over a really important detail. What? Uh, at one point when they're Rolling Stone is really pressing the character to like send them something, oh, they, yeah, they refer talk about, to yeah. an old piece of technology yeah, called do. the Mojo. The Mojo. It's almost like a fax machine, but it's even older. You can yeah. send text over the phone. And they're like, and it's really fast. 18 minutes a page. Yeah. Which is inaccurate. I dislike their, it's a cute line. I like the detail of the mojo. There are a couple times in the movie where they make the jokes like that that drive me crazy. Right. Jimmy Fallon does a similar one where he goes, do you think Mick Jagger's going to be up on stage like this when he's 50? And it's like, yeah, we, we know. We, and then he breaks. We live in the future. And then he breaks, and then Horatio Sands come on, comes <laughs> on, and they slap each other on the back. Um, uh, they go to New York. Uh, there's a scene I like where they go to dinner, and the wife is there. And uh, he hears from Jay Baruchel, a young Jay Baruchel, sure. who's also very good in this movie, who's Fine. following around uh, Zeppelin. Plays Vic Munoz. He's been following around Led Zeppelin. Uh-huh. Uh, he uh, hears that Penny is there with... With with Bowie? Yes. Maybe? I can't She's remember. She's a Bowie groupie now, a uh, Band-Aid. Um, but uh, they're at dinner, and then they see Penny Lane there, yeah, and she- sitting next to the wife. And then she keeps on looking at them, and the wife says, like, do any of you know her? She's giving us a lot of weird looks. And, like, four of them in unison go, like, yeah. Yeah, she's, she's me. me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it immediately gives it up. Yeah. And there's a, it's just a great moment of looks where then she kind of puts her head down. She knows what's going on. Then he looks over to her while she's looking over to him, and all of it is good. Great. Well done. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cameron Crowe's really on. comfortable yeah, with stalking people. She tries to people. kill herself with the quaaludes. She tries to kill herself with the quaaludes. William kisses her when she's passed out, which is creepy. Yeah, real creepy. The line, though, when he calls the hotel desk and he says, my wife's had some, an accident with some quaaludes, is an excellent Cameron Crowe line that is very funny. Yep. Uh, uh, Nick Swardson plays a Bowie fan. Yeah, he does. A lot of weird cameos. Eric Stone Street plays a desk clerk who was freaked out by William's mom. Uh, Rain Wilson plays a almost uh, an almost famous reporter, a Rolling Stone reporter. Yeah, who has like a cigarette holder. Yeah, uh, Marin. There are a lot of like comedy people in this. Uh, sure, Marin uh, plays the guy who says "lock the gates." In uh, earlier in the oh, film. that was him. That's Mark Marin. Did you know he that. actually ad libbed a bunch of his dialogue? <laughs> I did hear that. Do you know that he used to be the door guy at the Laugh Factory? I've heard that before. It was like in the 80s, <laughs> it right? It was in the comedy store. <laughs> I don't even remember. Oh, yeah, the Laugh Factory. Right. Yeah. Comedy store. I think he worked at the, I think he did, got passed at the comedy store. He was the door guy at the I Laugh Factory. Right. Did I don't you know, know he auditioned for SNL? No, really? Almost got it. To do what? Weekend Update? Yeah. Oh, God, he would have been a good fit for that. I actually, but I bet he was too difficult to work with. Well, the, the thing is that he had a weird interaction with uh, Lorne Michaels. Oh, God. Did he guys, try to take the candy guys, on the desk? I, we've, got, we've got to go in 10 minutes. <laughs> 10 minutes. But what Do you think Lord Mar- Mark Marin has a good relationship with his parents? Ed Asner plays his dad, right? In, Mar- in Marin? Yeah. Uh, I think for the pilot and they reshot it. Oh, they, they did? Okay. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Anyway. My best parents were narcissists, and it feels so, like he grew up with them rather than was raised by them. So then the film finishes rather fast, I would say. Um, There's like the, the confrontation at Rolling Stone. He saves Penny Lane. Where they, she tells him her real name, which is Lady Goodman. We should acknowledge that. Yeah. Her last her no, name is Lady Goodman because yeah, her mother thought she would marry into uh, aristocracy. Goes, gives the story. They're like, this sucks. No, no, they love the story. The first scene is this is a puff piece. Yeah, sure. No, right, right. And he no. goes, "Hey, you said show me what you got. Yeah, give me a, give me a night, yeah, right, to work on it." Then he gives them the real story. He clearly. calls up Philip Seymour Hoffman. He's no, got all. That's he does when that it happens. Way, no, he does that before. Incorrect. Uh, okay. He goes, "Give me the night." 
He goes there with a typewriter, blank page, Mm -hmm. with all of the Polaroids, and he's trying to figure out how to write the story that's honest. Right. And he calls it Phyllis Hoffman then. What does he say? It's the the only currency in this bankrupt world is when what you share with someone else when you're uncool. Okay. I thought that was earlier. All right. No, it's when he's trying to write the piece. Okay. And uh, I I heard that Philip Seymour Hoffman, because they were, like, having a hard time getting Patrick Puget to cry, Philip Seymour Hoffman called him up and, like, said, like, it's a pretty great experience you've had, huh? Uh-huh. Tried to get him worked up about yeah. the emotions. Like, yeah. I mean, he got to work with all these creative right, people right, right, right. in the last Fallon. three months. <laughs> got Mark to meet Maron. Jimmy Fallon, and now it's all going to end. And he, like, got him bawling. And then uh, yeah. Puget's really good in this scene. Uh, <laughs> Shrug. Clearly, I don't even remember the scene. This is the most important scene. This is the famous, iconic Philip Seymour Hoffman scene. This is the <laughs> thing. I, are you serious? Yeah. This totally is the serious. most famous scene in the entire film. Not for me. I don't know. This is Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, you know, Which that's one? what all the best loves about uh, arts about is love disguises sex and sex disguises love. I can't yeah. tell if you're doing a bit now or not. I'm not doing a bit. This is not a scene that made an impact on me. Ben, can you back me up here? I I believe you're right. Um, yeah. This is, I feel like this is the iconic scene. This is the thing that everyone played when Philip Seymour Hoffman died. Oh, yeah. I mean, but I mean, I just remember like Lester Bangs stuff. This is the Lester Bangs scene, right? But that's he's in some scenes. He's got some scenes where he says cool stuff. This is the big scene where he says the coolest thing. That's great. That's great. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to do a bit. I don't remember. He writes the piece. I remember him writing the piece. They love it. They go, no, great. This we'll just great fact check Because it. it's so cruel and like, yeah. you know, truthful and yeah. like. Honest, unmerciful, unmerciful makes yeah. them look like buffoons, you know, yeah. and like like they can't handle their fame. Yeah, and they go it's sophisticated, it's sharp, it's funny. Right. I do love the moment when he walks into the office and they all can't believe that he's a kid. It's a good moment. Uh, yeah, it's a good moment. Yeah, it, it, it's yeah, it's a little cutesy because like you've got Rain Wilson with his uh, his cigarette holder, and like Terry Chen is kind of weird as Ben Fong Torres because he's yeah. kind of like a fool. You know, uh, like he's yeah. like really easily fooled by yeah. this child who's in, sure. you know, pretty uh, childish. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, whatever. Aaron I mean, Foley I, comes back. My and, guess is Cameron Crowe ran it by the real Ben Fong Torres. And the probably, guy, yeah, you know, the guy was like, great. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, she comes back and goes like, it's bullshit. All of it. He fucking faked the whole thing. Well, no, you see that scene. Maybe it's only in the extended cut, or is it in both? I can't remember. Where Jimmy Fallon basically says, like, it's fine. That's in Russell, the you deny it, and, right. like, this all goes away. Right. He, they, they all have gotten a call fact-checking things that happened. Right, right, right. Um, And they all were, like, angry about it. And then he was like, well, Russell hasn't said anything yet. If he just denies everything, they'll kill the story. Now, I have no idea why this would work. It does, it's it to me is speaking as journalist, it makes no sense. That doesn't make any sense at all. Maybe especially if other band members had already corroborated stuff. Think about how untested he is as a writer, though. Especially yeah, now mean, that they know he's fifteen. It's perfectly plausible, but the way the movie does it is so quick to me. Where they're suddenly like, they get one phone call, and some lady comes in. She's like, "It's all fake," and they're like, Ugh, "Fine." It and then they like leave, and it's like, "You spent a lot of money on this story. You sure you just want to drop it?" It feels a little concise. <laughs> Little concise. Didn't they book Annie Leibovitz to shoot for the cover? <laughs> yes. Like what? Yes, they did. <laughs> um, and then you've got also you wouldn't you wouldn't show it doesn't matter. It doesn't, what? You what wouldn't would show you... the story to the band before it you you might fact check stuff with them, but not like I don't understand it. I, I can't I can't even begin. It's a little neat. It's, it doesn't make any it's sense. It's a little neat, but we're at like the end of the movie now. Well, that's the thing, and it needs to happen fast. Right. Where like, So Russell has this epiphany where he's like, Penny, I got I to gotta make my amends to her. Yeah. And he calls her, and she's like, yeah, no, no sure, sure. You can come see me. Here's Gives my him address. William's address. 
very very cute of her. Yeah, you know because she knows she's over it now. Right, she's had her moment of like clarity with him. Right. Yeah. And uh, she. Oh, knows- did we talk about how she overdosed? We kind of yeah. We talked about that. no, no. He had an accident with some quaaludes. Right. Yeah. Uh, I just the stomach pumping scene really got me. It's good. Oh, it's, it's uh, good. It's gross. Awful. It's real gross. But she's in San Diego, or at least in Southern California again, right? She I lives think in the she's same in San town Diego. As yeah, he yeah. says that we live in the same town. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or or Russell says that to him. Yeah, like, Russell says that when he meets her, he's town. like, "You should hang out with Penny." Yeah. yeah. Um, but he goes to the house. Russell thinks he's there to fuck Penny Lane. <laughs> The door is. I do like that because at least it's not like he he doesn't have a moment of like a total moment of like uh, oh I need to make it better for this kid. Right. He does need to get nudged into it, and then he's like oh because he goes like is she here? And Francis McDormand goes like who Zoe Deschanel? She's right here. Right right here. Star of the future. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Although he has already called Rolling Stone at this point, I guess so. Maybe he is a good guy. Yeah. Right. Because he says like I called you know and I said it's all true. Yeah. Let me give you that interview. But he still wasn't going to say it to his face. The interview, you know? He gives him the interview. William sits there at the tape recorder and he and he's starts like, What rolling. do you love about music? Well, let me turn my chair around. He fucking AC Slater's that chair. Hell yeah. He really AC Slater's it. Yeah. And we see Penny picking, t- uh, taking a plane to Morocco like she always talked about. She said she has a lot of partial tickets. So she gives them like a stack of like 40 papers. Right. And goes like, Morocco, please, window seat. Yeah. And then you see the '74 van, the the title yeah. of the tour. They, they're back in the, the almost famous tour. Now it's no the planes No Planes or Tour '74. Yeah. Lock the gates. Don't you see one other piece? Maybe. I feel like there's one other piece you see of something kind of uh, of, of, of people's lives coming together. Oh, they show the cover of Rolling Stone. That oh yeah, you oh, see sure. the cover. Sure. That finally yeah, comes yeah, out. And yeah. and uh, you know Russell is indeed at the front. They're yep. all lined up, and yep. he's closest to the camera. He's but, hot. But Jeff doesn't seem that angry about it. feels like they kind of sure. came to terms with their places. Eric Stone Street comes back. Yeah. And he's like, look for me on Modern Family eight years from now. Yeah, there's that weird, ABC. That weird epilogue of the movie where all the characters <laughs> plug the things they're going to do 15 years <laughs> later. Rain Wilson's like, I'll appear on eight seasons of The Office. First six feet under, though. Don't yeah. forget about that. You know, a lot of movies have like uh, super titles that tell you what happened to the characters. Yeah, after yeah the they movie. tell you what happens to the actors. This weird, has the the actors themselves too. break character and say it to lens. Yes, yeah. yes it says yes. that this uh, uh, that the it was also brought to you by stamps.com. That is true. Well, but it end. was. Yeah. it was brought to you by stamps. Which is so weird. Yeah. Can I ask you guys something? And according to the next episode that we're going to air, Al Gore hasn't yet invented the internet when this movie comes out. Oh, so boy. it's you know, pretty, pretty this hard. This is great recording we episodes out of order so we yeah, can we plug bits <laughs> that we'll establish in the next episode. Can I ask you guys a very serious question? Absolutely. You should lock the gate. Well, no. Always the, lock the, your no gates. Bits, no bits. No bits. Right, mm-hmm. right, right, okay. Right. No bits. Pro Smiths. This is a serious <laughs> question I have for you guys. Okay. Why wasn't Jimmy Smith in this? He, he should be in good. this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Throw him in a ship. I'm trying to find a mattress that could be shipped to me in a box <laughs> the size of a mini fridge. Do you have any idea? Hmm. Oh, boy. Any idea? Want that mid-roll. Where I could find that. Uh, this has been our episode about Almost Famous. This has been oh, do you want to do Pod the Most Cast Miss. Yes. Do you want about the Yeah, September 2000. Ooh, I also have a merch spotlight. You have a merch spotlight. I'm going to kill oh, you, yeah. Ben. Benny, merch spotlight. Go. Okay. Uh, so on Amazon, you could buy the Stillwater t-shirt. Really? Oh, cool. yeah. yeah. You mean the one with, with uh, Russell in the forefront? Blurry? And then the other guy's like completely like yeah. darkened out in the background. That's a cool shirt. I might buy it. All right. Uh, thanks, thanks, Ben. That was a great version of Spotlight. Hey, no problem. You're a great guy. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
<laughs> cool. Box office came. Uh, so the where is it? Jesus, wait a second. Let me find it. Okay, so the movie came out limited release on September fifteenth, and then did it go wide the next weekend? And it went wide the next weekend. So in limited release, it opens in one hundred and thirty theaters to two million dollars. Eighth, pretty decent, you know. And then wide release. So and that weekend, number one was The Watcher with eight well, five point. No, 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 I want to do the next weekend okay. because okay. that's sort of. The oh, limit. oh, oh! You're yeah. saying the limited release weekend? Yeah. It was The Watcher, right? And the Watcher five point eight million for number one. That's I think it pretty was bad. Number one two or three weeks in a row. Yes, it's but they the were, second week. They were all low. The first weekend was like eight, and the second right. weekend was five. Yeah. Number two is Bait with Jamie Foxx. Interesting. Okay. And you've got some. All right. So number uh, the next weekend, Almost Famous expands uh, to like uh, twelve hundred theaters. Uh huh. You know, maybe a mistake. They maybe sh- they probably should have built it a little bit. You yeah. Know, because I mean, the movie tanks. It opens number. It it, it goes to number three. Yeah. Seven million dollars, and in total, it, it grosses thirty-two million domestic, forty-seven worldwide. I mean, Never it's comes. not even close to the budget. You yeah. Know. People so, who love it love it, but it doesn't. It do wins well. an Oscar, like we said, yeah. an Academy Award for screenplay, which I remember being kind of a surprise at the time. Slightly surprising. Yeah. Um, but again, it was that year where like Gladiator was your favorite. Traffic's yeah. over and adapted. You know, so it's like there wasn't an obvious, you know. But I even remember going into Best Picture that year, people were like, it could go Traffic, Crouching Tiger, or Gladiator. Like, all three of those felt like they kind of had equally good chances in different ways. Um, sure. Um, it was a weird, yeah. It was a weird year. Yeah, uh, Quills was in there. Yeah, Quills. Chocolat. Yeah, well, that's, yeah. Um, I mean, it should have been, but nominated for Best Picture over Chocolat. Yeah, okay. I so, mean, I'm not the hugest fan of so let's let's go through the box office. Number three is almost famous with seven million. Correct. Number one, give me a hint. Was it a new release? New release. Give me a hint. It's a sequel to a horror movie. Uh, well, it's not uh, Blair Witch Two: Book of Shadows. It's not. It's not the old Book of Shadow. But that did come out this year, right? That's. I believe that is a two thousand release. Yes. It's a sequel to a horror movie. You're never going to get it. There's like a guy in a fencing mask on the poster. Urban Legends 2? Yes. Urban Legends Final Cut. I was almost going to guess that was the subtitle. Yeah. Okay. So that opened to 8.5 million. Now here's the crazy thing. An almost famous could beat neither of these. The second film is a re-release of a classic horror movie. The Exorcist? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, that was a big re-release. No, it was. I remember it had yeah. the spider walk sequence. But, but it's, obviously. Oh my god! Yeah, but it is like, insane that almost famous, almost famous couldn't crack either of these. Come yeah. on, man! So it's the, two horror movies. You can't be one of them. Is the Watcher number four? Watcher's number five. Number four is in its fifth week of release and is kind of a sleeper hit. It's grossed fifty six million dollars. Uh, teen movie, very good film, by a director we've talked about a lot on this podcast. It's a teen movie, a very good film. By a director we've talked about. Well, Old Dogs didn't come out until 2011. <laughs> Fuck you. So that's... Uh, give me one more hint. Oh, boy. It's uh, hard to hard to give you a hint on this one. 56 I, Sleeper. What does it end up at? It ends up at a 68. 90 worldwide on a $28 million budget. You know, it, it's, it's a high school movie. It's got some sports elements to it, but it's a female-focused film. Bring it on? Correct. Pretty good. That was really sticking in there. Was really sticking in there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good job bringing it on. Yeah. And then number five is The Watcher. You've got Bait. Yeah. You've got Ugly. Uh, sorry, Nurse Betty, not Ugly Betty. Yeah. She hasn't come around yet. It's yet to come. Yeah. Uh, uh, What Lies Beneath. Great, great, great little thriller. Never seen that one. 
Oh, old it's Zemeckis. Yeah, I know. It's weird. It's a weird one. It's the only Bobby Z film I think I haven't seen. Uh, okay. There's a Space Cowboys. Clint Eastwood goes to space. Another one sticking in there because that was like in early August, I think, right? Yeah, it's its eighth week. It's doing very well. And then number ten, a film we're going to discuss next week: Woman on Top. Oh, that's another teaser for an episode we've already recorded. Woman uh, on Top. Wait to end uh, the show. Yeah, we'll uh, end. I'll just tell you who Crow beat for original screenplay. Gladiator, I know. Gladiator, Aaron Brockovich, which right. would have you know been a decent winner. Susanna Grant. Yeah. Uh, Bill, Billy Elliot, which uh-huh. also would have been an okay winner. Lee Hall. Yeah. And then you can count on me, which is an incredible Kenneth Lonergan, which probably uh, is your winner if I'm picking. But Lonergan's you know. my dude. <laughs> so you know, but a weird year, and you can see how he won. Uh, my friend Jordy Fish, who's a, a, a listener of the show, friend of the show, uh, he had a joke that. Um, the only reason directors make uh, extended cuts of their film is to add in more scenes of Anna Paquin. Because <laughs> Margaret the rogue and, and, uh, and Almost Margaret. Famous and uh, X-Men. Yeah. yeah. Um, good. Good. Good yeah. joke. Great. Thank you, Jordan Fish. Great. Very nerdy film joke. Yeah. Uh, he. That's his specialty. Yes. Uh, I was just going to say, I've never seen What Lies Beneath, but I worked on a movie where the hair woman was the woman who did hair and What Lies Beneath. Okay. She worked on a lot of films. And I asked her, like, you know, uh, she said she liked props from movies. When they had like the prop sales at the end of a production, yeah, sure. to try to buy little things. And I said, "Is there anything cool you have?" And she said, "Yeah, I have the bathtub from What Lies Beneath." <laughs> it's an iconic bathtub. It's the poster I, from the I movie. I also can't think of another thing you would want from What Lies Beneath. It's the only thing in the movie. But I was like, "They let you buy that?" And she was like, "Yeah, they made a big mistake." Yeah, they did. How like much the, did she buy it for? She was like, I don't know, like a hundred dollars or something. <laughs> it's a good bathtub. Yeah, it's like a claw foot bathtub. I think you can't use it, but she's just got it in her living room. It's the bathtub with the blood marks on it. From oh, what that's lies crazy. I, that's if so I remember funny. correctly, I thought that was crazy to imagine that. Well, uh, I hope all of you are. Because the only other thing you could buy is like Michelle Pfeiffer's foot. Right. <laughs> like, right. I don't know what else is in that. That's but... just like such an iconic. I haven't seen that movie, yeah, and no. I know how iconic yeah. that thing is because it was all over the trailer and the poster and all that. <sighs> so we're not going to see each other for a while. Yeah, you'll see us next week. But you'll see us next you'll week. You'll hear us next week. I'll be back in a couple of weeks, Griffin, and we'll lay down some yeah. Lizzie Town and some Zoo Buy-in and yeah. some... Uh, I mean, this uh, is going to be confusing to the Aloha. audience because there are two episodes in between the ones you're yeah. talking about yeah. doing and the one they're listening to We've right already now. done them, but... We binged ahead because David's going out of town, and uh, yeah, you'll, you'll hear us without any interruptions. Keep on listening. Have a fun time listening to Blank Check. And as always, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe. All of the above. Sure. Uh, feel free to tweet us in with your burger reports, anything of the kind. Absolutely. Uh, and and as always, of course, lock the gate! This has been a UCB Comedy production. Check out our other shows on the UCB Comedy Podcast Network. <laughs>